0: Hey, a quick announcement before I start today's episode. Uh, for those of you who don't know already, I run a wedding planning studio called Beautiful Gathering and ever since I started this podcast and my other business uh, animation studio I've been neglecting the business for a little bit Um, so hence I make a big decision to give away my entire wedding planning business uh, to one lucky uh, candidate uh, for free so if you have any friends or you yourself personally are aspiring to be a wedding planner uh, do write in the application the link is in the on the website it's a uh, beautiful-gatherings.com slash application but you can also find it on the Brian victor's uh website and today's uh, uh podcast today's interview episode so yeah answer a few questions right in and um without further ado here's today's episode with aaron Mania. Podcast listeners, welcome to episode 22 of Misfits. So this is where I speak to the rebels, the outliers, and the unconventionals in Singapore. Try to see things as how they see it and to learn from them. So some of these individuals include Gina Tao, who started an ice cream cart business and got enough money to buy a BMW, all under the age of 22. Dr. Loretta Chen, who is a consultant to the Kingdom of Bhutan. Agent Punk, uh, and a whole lot more. So today on the show, we have Aaron Manian. He's the Director of the Industry Division of Ministry of Trade and Industry Singapore. So Aaron have received numerous awards, including, but not limited to, the Asia Society, Asia 21st Young Leaders, uh, Singapore Youth Award, National Art Council, Golden Point Award, and the World Economic Forum Young Global Leader One. Okay, and the list goes on. So in 1995, Aaron was also the top student in the Cambridge GCEO level examination. Aaron holds a Master of Arts in International and Development Economics from Yale University and a Master of Public Policy from the Balvanic School of Government in Oxford University. In this conversation, we spoke about the strength of a polymath how introverts develop skills of an extrovert, tools for 21st century innovator, and a whole lot more. I really enjoyed this conversation with uh, Aaron, and I hope you do too. So, without further ado, thank you so much for you know taking your time out. and Thanks for having and, and, me and, and doing this. I really appreciate that. You know, you 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 help you help a lot, and uh, you know you want to do this and you, you push it through with me. I think not a lot of uh, my um, interviewees need to go through um, a lot of uh, um, levels to get this approved. So, so yeah. we got it. Thank, well, thank yeah. you. So I, I think, think you know,
1: we're talking about fun things, so we should yeah. be okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate this. I just wanna know.
0: Yeah. So I think let's just start with the first question, which is you know you have done many things from working in the government sector to mm-hmm. writing poems and books, and on your on your TED talk. Um, so I I saw the whole image and then. You, you give yourself the label of being a polymath and a mm. Um So, how, let me really start with one term first. So, how would you define polymath?
1: So, first of all, I didn't give myself the the, oh, the okay, name. So they, the they, the, they... the TED organizers decided okay, okay. To, to apply then, that to then, us. Yeah, yeah um, sure, but I don't disagree with it. I think it's uh, probably not a bad description because polymaths are supposed to be people who work with different disciplines. You know, they're not defined by A narrow focus. They're defined by broad focus on on multiple sectors, multiple disciplines, multiple perspectives and I think that does describe to quite a large degree what I do and a lot of it actually comes from the kind of family that I come from because my family is very very mixed. My dad is half Tamil, half Eurasian, so there's a bit of Portuguese in there from Mm -hmm. way back when. My mother is half Malay and almost half Pakistani with a smattering of Chinese. Yeah. So we're a very, very diverse family. And from very young, I realized that boundaries don't really matter. You know, that I don't have an easy label for myself. Because if you want to label me, then you need all sorts of dashes, you know, with all the the multiple different ethnic groups. And I figured, okay, if that's the case, then that's what I will be, you know. I don't have to worry about the labels and the boundaries. I will just work with what is there. And I think that's applied later on into the kind of work that I've done. I try not to be focused on a narrow boundary but to deal with multiple different sectors and how they interact with each other.
0: And so I guess when you grew up you saw the idea that it's really hard to label yourself. So, so but that being said you know like when did you really start um, taking on the label of being a polymath? Like do you, is there a tipping point for you?
1: Um, I will not say it's a tipping point so much as a, a gradual accumulation of, you know, of the identity. So when I was in school, I realized that I wanted to try many different things. I wanted to, to work on, for instance, you know, poetry at work, but I also wanted to try and be reasonably good at mathematics and, and then, you know, work with, on the school newsletter, do community service, uh, do stuff within school as well as with Mandaki and Sinda, And so I realized that the, the boundaries don't actually matter. And it was more a gradual accumulation process of these many different identities. And then after a while, I realized, okay, they actually sit quite well and they don't have to be mutually exclusive with each other.
0: And do you have... Because the reason why I asked is that I personally struggle with it. So I only recently... Took on the, the identity as a generalist, which mm-hmm. I think quite the same. I mean, that's is that I mean, is that a difference? Or, I mean, for me, it
1: feels the same. Yeah, I think they are similar. Okay, know? polymaths are generalists, except that I guess a polymath would try and go quite deep into a few areas as well. Some people will say that a generalist might stay; uh, they won't go as deep into into in gotcha. different areas. But I think at their best, a generalist is very much a polymath. Gotcha.
0: Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So so the the question was, I I only took up that term. Um, other, the identity sort of uh, earlier maybe last year yeah. uh, and, I, and I find it fantastic right you know it, it's great and, and I guess more, more than just taking up I really think that's the strength that's, that's, that's a core strength yeah. and so I mean and I don't know if you feel the same for yourself being a polymath mm.
1: I, I do I do there's actually a wonderful TED talk about this by a woman called Emily Wapnick who writes about why not all of us will have one true calling and that the generalists or the people who have multiple interests or the polymaths, you know, to use another phrase, are the ones who will be able to draw insights and innovation from across different sectors. Mm-hmm. You know, they might use the work they do in music to innovate and in- give insights to the work they do in mathematics. They might use something that they work on in public sector, as I do, to inform their community service. They might use their poetry to inform their public sector and work. this is uh,
0: yeah. Emily, A-M-E-L-I-E?
1: Uh, E-M-I-L-I-E, oh, okay. uh, Wapnik. W-A-P-N-I-C-K. Ah,
0: okay, I, yeah. think, I think I might have, uh, yeah, she, she writes a blog. Uh, yes, that she, and have, does. she, she, yeah, she a, does. Yeah, she does. So she's uh, a big she well.
1: pusher for, you know, people who don't have single identities. Uh, and yeah.
0: was that, I mean, like, would you say that that was the point where you really took on that term or was it completely um, way no, before? No, I
1: think I've been doing this for a long time. I watched Emily's talk maybe a, a year and a bit ago um, and I remember watching it and thinking, yes, you have given a name to something that I feel a lot of me, my friends and I have already been doing for, for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great, you know, when someone gives you language to understand what you've been working on so far. yeah, that's
0: fantastic. And I guess also with your current situation, any in- Pretty well versed in you know, various fields of studies and, and, and spread across different industries. So, you know, if you've been thrown into an ignorant land, you know, just uh, maybe I'm not sure what you sound to be really good at everything. So no, 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 no we're like, all learning. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe like okay, uh, trees, right? For example, right? and um, and and you want to quickly learn about that to maybe go into to talk to some mm-hmm. about uh, what would be the process looks like if you really quickly only maybe, maybe let's say a time frame, more, a week yeah, to, to catch up? Mm, mm.
1: That's a great question. I would start, see, I'm a reader at heart. I, I learn best when I am reading and and slowly digesting material. So I think I would try and set aside at least a few hours, if not a day for myself to read around something. And that might include not just books, but, you know, things on Google, online resources, But what I would probably do is email a few friends, first of all, who I know to be experts and say, I'm I'm working on this. Can you all help suggest good websites or good books that I should look at, good articles? So I would start with some of that reading. Then I might also put something out on Facebook just to kind of canvas the hive mind a bit, mm-hmm. you know, and just say, these are the questions I'm interested in. Can people suggest things? Because apart from the friends I would have approached, I suspect there'll be a lot of other people in my network who might be able to suggest ideas to me. So i put that out there. And then you see what comments come back, you know, yeah. maybe people will give me a website or a link or an article they themselves wrote, or put a comment in that would end up being useful for me. So I would crowdsource a bit. And then finally, in the last couple of days, what I would also try and do is go and talk to people. Because I find that I learn a lot when I'm having a deep Intimate conversation with a person, a bit like this interview, right? Where we're sitting down and having a deep conversation where we explore things in some detail. This
0: after so I like would, you uh, have sort of crafted out some questions that you want to answer. then. Yeah, I looking think so. for the right person to answer those. Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, that's, that's interesting. And and if if it's, uh, an uh, abolist, say for example, and we throw you into empire, to mm. uh, what are some of the the topics that would be? Uh, this is. By the way, this is by, on the fly. What are some of the topics that would sort of like fascinate you about uh, trees and maybe some of the questions they'd be asking this specialist?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I've never actually thought about that. Well, the first thing I would, I would ask them some technical questions. I suppose, you know, what is the nature of the field? What are the you know most recent scientific trends that they have they have discovered? Um, but I would probably ask that we walk around, maybe go the, walk around the botanic gardens or one of our parks, so that it doesn't just become a theoretical conversation in a, a room, but we're actually living the, the the trees, you know, with us. And so I, I would actually probably try and do that kind of walk as much as possible, and then I would also ask them some other questions that are a bit broader, but that hopefully will give insight to the work that they do. So I would ask them things like, what makes them happiest when they're at work? What are the things that frustrate them most? Who are their most important allies in the work that they do? And I think those are oblique questions, but they would sometimes generate useful insights into what the overall field is about as well. Especially questions like, what makes them happy and what frustrates them?
0: Yeah, Yeah. uh, those are good questions, uh, actually.
1: (laughs) Great. So if you ever interview an arborealist, you can ask them some of that. Yes, yes.
0: And and in fact, I, I think those questions are pretty general uh, for any specialty. Absolutely. And, and yeah. anyone, actually, in fact. yeah, Um, yeah, and we will bring out very good topics of conversation. In fact, you know, if anyone, because I was just speaking to Violet, um, um who runs a lunch actually, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this whole dating thing. Yeah. And I, I bet those yeah. questions are great for first dates as well. Yes, I suspect so. They're non-threatening and broad enough. <laughs> yes. And I want to get your opinion on this because, you know, I'm personally curious about it because most people, more people would say that they are Either left brain or right brain, mm. mm. and well, one being artistic and one being very methodical. Yeah. So, what do you think of it? You know, is it because you being, you know, you are both? Like, yeah, I would like to think that. Um, and I so try like, to be. Oh, yeah, definitely trying to be. Yeah. So, you know, do you think what are your stance on it? You know, like people saying that they are either left
1: or right. Do you think that's a limiting belief that they put on themselves, mm. or? I think it is possible for people to be a bit more right or left brain. Um, that we probably all have natural preferences, things that we are good at without m- as much effort, for instance, as, as other people. So natural gifts, for, for instance, or natural preferences and inclinations. But I suspect we can always learn to build up the skills in the other side of the brain as well. So I'll give you an example. Like You think about how you you write, you're right? Um, And that's a good signifier of which part of the brain is controlling or the, the dominant side. So if you're a left-hander, your right brain is meant to be Stronger. And okay. if you're right-handed, your left brain is stronger. Right. So your, your left brain, which is the more analytical side, that's supposed to be the, the, I think the, the neural theory behind it. But what I found is that you can learn to write with your other hand. For instance, I, I remember I fractured my arm when I was a teenager and I had to learn how to write with my right hand because I broke my left arm and I had to then learn how to use my right arm because I would not be able to write otherwise. And of course, it was very awkward at first. It takes a lot of patient, intentional effort and practice. But you can't get there, you know. And now my two hands writing are very different. So it's almost like they're different personalities or different sides of me. But I use them at different times of the day. So if I want to do, you know, quick work, I'll use my my left hand because that's my master hand, my dominant hand. I know I'm natural at it. But if I want to do slightly creative work and I want to do, I want to get myself thinking outside of the box or making my brain work in ways that it normally doesn't work, I will use my right hand. Because then I'm in a sense using a different part of the, the brain to focus and to concentrate. So I think it's very possible that we use both sides of the brain. And it's something that can be grown a bit like any muscle. With effort and intentional practice, we can grow it.
0: And of all the uh, people who are both uh, left and right brainer that you know of, do you think that it is something that they practice? Or maybe it's just sort of a... uh, a youth kind of situation where they just put in a situation that they, they, they can, you know, practice the, the musical artistic side and, you know, mm. at the same time being engineering, or, you know, they're just naturally like, like talent like that. So, I mean, the question that I'm asking here is yeah. more like, is it, is it n- nature or nurture? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Um, and if, if it's one or the other, I mean, which I, mm. I mean, I'm personally leaning towards uh, nurture, um, then, you know, what are some, ways that people can wrap their brains around it or start doing something for you to just say it right? right in the other hand yeah, that put themselves in those kind of um, maybe growth situation. in the other. Yeah. Growth
1: situation is a good way to describe it because I think it's about setting yourself a space to try something that you may not be naturally good at but that you can acquire skill at after a while. I do think you know you can. We can all do that. We can set ourselves positions of growth, and this is what the great psychologist Carol Dweck talks about when she talks about a growth mindset. Right, that all of us, if we believe that we can learn, and if we believe we can improve by talking to people and by acquiring training, then actually we we will be able to grow. But that doesn't mean, of course, that if you have no musical talent at all, you practice a lot, you can become a you know Beethoven or a Bach or a Mozart at some point. That I'm not sure is possible, but you can certainly become a very good functional violin player or someone playing the keyboard, that I think is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there is some role for nature and that's partly us finding the things that you know we were, we are almost called to do, right? The, the the deep gifts that we are each given. But that doesn't mean that we can't practice because I see many examples of people who, you know, um, they may not be the best musicians in the world, but through practice they acquire a certain amount of ability. Someone might not be a great mathematician, but they become very fairly numerate across time because they, they develop and practice the the skills that are needed.
0: And have you met anyone who are uh, late polymath, then or they, they usually have get the term before twenty. Late, I mean, I mean yeah. maybe it's a bit above thirty, right? right? You know, I don't. Yeah, maybe. Maybe.
1: I have, I think you know, I've, I've met colleagues, for instance, who say that they, they've tried many different things and then after they, they're around 34, 35, they, they find the thing that they feel is the, a really good fit for them and then they work on that. Um, and so there are certainly examples of that. You know, I've got friends, for instance, from, from the civil service who've moved into more dedicated planning roles and have stopped trying to be pure generalists. There are others who, you know, they've tried a few things and then they said, no, actually, I really want to be an engineer and I want to focus. But it's not so much a late polymath at that stage. It's more that I think they they find that having acquired many different things, because you can't be a polymath from the start, right? You have to draw from different disciplines. And that means giving yourself the space to explore each one of them in some depth. So that alone will take a certain amount of time, I think. Uh, but these are people who, by the end of it, will find that, okay, they found a space where they can combine the things they are really passionate about and develop them in a much more deep sort of way.
0: And so, the question is, if you have or have met someone who is... Because a polymath can just be easily disguised as someone who just uh, tried different things and, you know, don't like to do or their interests just can't, you know, mm-hmm. uh, resettle in one. Right. You know, how would you tell them that this is actually a strength versus is actually a... A weaknesses because for me i personally feel that way until mm. only recently like yeah do you have any you know how will you convince them that it's actually a strength
1: well the thing i would say is something that we referred to briefly earlier but i think it's worth developing and fleshing out it's really the fact that nowadays what we're dealing with right, is tasks and projects and work that is increasingly complex very little work allows you to focus very deeply you know even if you're a lawyer or an accountant where you have specific sets of skills you will often be working for clients that face complex circumstances, right? That may kind of straddle between the economy and social concerns. That may have multiple areas and sectors of business that they have to work through. And for those things to happen, you need to have interest in those sectors as well, so that you can use your skills in the most relevant applied way. Same thing with someone who's a teacher, right? They might teach a specific subject, but you're dealing with a student who is is holistic. Uh, in some of the work that I do, the community areas, you know, we have to plan projects, we have to plan events, we have to manage budgets, we have to make sure that our volunteer relations are strong and all those require multiple sets of skills. So what I would say to potential polymaths, I suppose, right, is that they need to focus on developing multiple skills so that they can use those areas of knowledge and insight to mutually cross-pollinate with each other. And that the more they do that, the more they will find there is value that they can create.
0: Yeah. And and to just add on to whatever that you have said is fantastic is that um I think in this world of too many skills, too much things to learn, uh, a good for, at least for me, I can speak for myself, is um it's just to follow things that you're interested in. And then yeah, then just you know, think pick sure. that as, the, as yeah. the first thing, and then just, yeah. just uh, until you, you you're tired of that. Yeah. then then go on to the next. Thing. It's a good
1: indicator that you will at least be interested enough to you know make it count for something, yes. and then later on you can cross pollinate it with other stuff.
0: Mm. Yeah. So we're going to rewind back a little bit to your childhood. Um, okay. Um, so I, I was looking through your resume, and I was just uh, blown away by the numerous awards. Comparing to me, I mean, I'm just a very off, kind uh, of you, uh, right? a, a yeah. good progress award, which is by the way, uh, the little fluke that you know you just need to score very lousy at the start of the year and then you <laughs> score better, then you get two hundred fifty dollars, like joining a lab. So you know, if anyone out there need of two hundred fifty dollars, that's how we can do it. Right. Um, so somehow it includes you being the top student in Singapore uh, for the GCE O level back in nine nine five. Right. <laughs> so. Why are you such a professional at scoring amazing grades?
1: Oh, you know, I—that's—it's—it's a, a—it's a funny question. I'm not sure I am a professional at that. I think the main thing really was that I was blessed enough with a few things. Um, I was blessed with parents who made sure that they encouraged us to do the things we were interested in and to to be the best we could be in in whatever we chose to do. And I think that encouragement counted for a lot because, of course, you know. That's just one exam, right? But there were many moments in, in secondary school of, of also struggling and realizing that I wasn't, you know, a lot better at things like English literature and history compared to physics and chemistry, which didn't come as naturally. But this goes back again to what I said earlier, you know, that you can be, through practice, you can acquire a certain amount of functional skill in a, main, a range of different subjects, um, and make sure that you are reasonably competent at, at all of them. So I think the encouragement to to just try our best and keep pushing ourselves and grow was an important part of it. I also had teachers who were infinitely patient, right? Teachers in in school who were willing to say, "All right, you're gonna you're good at these things naturally, right? Those things you probably need to put in a less effort for, but there are other things where you will have to to strive a little more, put in a bit more practice." And and those were the things I tried to to work at, and and, and that kind of encouragement counted for a lot as well. And when you have that combination, you know, parents and teachers who are so encouraging, um. I guess I was thankfully interested enough to also take them up on the encouragement and, and make sure that I pushed myself as much as I could.
0: And um, I, when I listen to your Q&A, uh, and even now, right, I'm always astounded that you, know, you, can, you can bring out names that just like, wow, like... I would have never remembered the, the, the lady's name, say for example, on the TED Talk. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, is, 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 I'm, I'm actually asking for myself is there anything that you do that, like, you know, allows you to remember even how to spell the name, right? It's an interesting question. Because um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I would never be able to, 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 to name that name of the TED Talk, cause although I know right. what exactly was TED right. Talk because I watched it before. Yeah. So, I mean, is that is, is that something that you, you know.
1: To be honest, right? I the, First of all, I guess. If I'm struck by something, what I try to do is make sure that I have an easy way to find that information again. Um, so with things like the TED Talks, or whenever I come across anything interesting, I actually have a Google Doc, which I call interesting ideas. Okay. And then I will do a quick two-sentence summary of the idea and just leave it there. And then every now and then I look back through that Google Doc. Because the nice thing is you can look at Google Docs on your phone now yeah. or when I'm on the train, when I don't have anything else to do. I'll just do a quick scan. And then when you do that a few times, the ideas tend to get reinforced. So a, I'm a big believer in that the brain is built not to remember but to think. Right? So I try and focus on thinking with the, for the brain. But when I need to remember stuff, I externalize that in my memory. And I go into my Google Doc and I just read through what's already there. So it's like a safe space where I store all the ideas that I find interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah. I do the, I do it. I do the same on Evernote, actually. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you can do it on either of those, I yeah. But then, but I mean, sure. Idea, I, I get. It. But then, what about like names
1: of people? Like, well, I'll put the name there okay, as well. About, okay. Okay. So I, I might say something like, you know, interesting idea about polymaths and people with multidimensional interests, and then I'll put the Emily Wapnick Ted talk, right? Um, so that when I see that, I tend to associate those two things with each other.
0: And and this list is ever growing. It's ever growing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it, growth
1: mindset right so it yeah, has to keep going yeah.
0: yeah I mean do you like later on like plug this into like another thing or you know uh, once you remember it or, or, or ex- the, the, the new ideas of interesting ideas not as expired being interesting uh, I'm just thinking about though, how I can probably manage it. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's an interesting question. I tend to leave the whole document there, okay. but I put the newer stuff right at the top. Oh. And then, what every now and then, what I will do is I'll look through the thing. If I have, say, you know, a couple of hours over uh, either a weekend or when I'm on vacation, I might just set aside two or three hours for myself to go through this document and then reclassify and cluster the material mm. somehow. Yeah. And to say, okay, actually now I'm seeing that there's a connection between idea number two and idea number seventeen. Right. And then putting them together and creating a new kind of cluster of ideas. So
0: you create a new document or just No, I'll them? do it
1: in the old document. And then I'll keep adding a section a new a set of new ideas into the new section as well.
0: So that's kind of like tagging of
1: Yeah, it's it's essentially tagging. Yeah, one of my friends actually a guy called Jerry Mikalski who lives in uh, the the west coast of the US. He actually uses the, you know the brain software that's out there. The he he software. there's a, a a software called the brain. Um, so his brain is externalized. He just it's essentially a, a software for mind maps that he he puts in more and more material all the time, including things like links and PDFs and tags. So everything that he knows is actually externalized there. So mine isn't quite as detailed as that. For me, I keep just the really interesting stuff in this document. Okay. Um, but Jerry's brain is actually right out there. You can look it up online, actually, and you see them.
0: Oh, okay. So, yeah. okay. let's just, uh, so I can find it on Google. So yeah. uh, what was Just question? Google Jerry Michalski brain and you'll find it. Jerry Mikalski, right? And then okay. Mikalski, how do I M-I-C-H-A-L-S-K-I. Okay. I wouldn't remember, but it's on audio now. So. Okay, that's when, that's when you don't have to worry about remembering. You just send me a <laughs> WhatsApp and I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> and, 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 you know, going back to your childhood a little bit, I mean, you can paint us a picture. You know how to set the set looked like growing up?
1: Interesting. That goes back, I guess, to the earlier thing I said, you know, about diversity and the kind of family mm-hmm. that, that I was very lucky to be born into. Because In growing up was... So we moved to this place when I was in primary one. Yeah. So I was born in Jalang for a couple of years and we stayed there. And then after that, we moved to Bedok North. And then we moved here after that when I was seven. Yeah. 1986. Um, and growing up was, to be honest, mostly a lot of fun. I mean, I had a, my first brother when I was four, my next brother when I was uh, seven, plenty of young cousins to, to play with as well. And we had a lot of fun. You know, it was just a lot of running around a lot of games, and, and also a lot of realising that each of us was slightly different, but that the, the differences made for a more diverse and more interesting experience. Because it would have been so boring if we weren't all the same. What's there
0: a favourite game back in the day?
1: Okay. There was no single favourite game, I think. We, you know, There were times we... My, one of my aunts lived in Jaang Caillou in the old British camp, so sometimes we would, my uncle would bring a tent and we would pitch it and just play there for the whole afternoon. Because one of my uncles... Uh, you know, used to be to be in the army, and so he had a lot of good skills with that. And so we, I remember, we bought a tent that it was a kind of fun place for the the kids to to hang out. And there was that we used to go kite flying in the in the back of that house because there was a lot of space. Uh, there were lots of visits as well. We would go out to the zoo. I remember spending long days at at the bird park as well, and just you know being together with young cousins and doing things that kids do, I guess.
0: Well, you know, it's uh, very different what kids do this day. That is true. That <laughs> but, is also true. Yeah, that it seems yeah. to be the information is all sort of like gathering in the, on the phone. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But no, you know, um, what what are the key tricks of young Aaron? If you were to look back, you know, <laughs> my goodness, I'm not sure.
1: Um, <laughs> I remember I used to draw a lot, um, draw and write. Um, yeah, there was a lot of drawing and writing, and I guess the the writing certainly has continued today. It's a very much a part of my life, and I often say to people, I am a writer. You know, I cannot, it's not something about myself that I can switch off. It's just there, and it's I guess that's what a calling or a vocation is, right? It's something that you know you have to do, and if you don't do it, you're not quite yourself. So I think writing is a big part of that. Uh, I draw much less, although I do sometimes still sketch. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't think I'm particularly great at it, but I think drawing is, is a useful way of also turning on a different part of my brain. Uh, so I remember going through some workshops once about something called graphic recording, where you just listen to people and then you sketch what they're talking about. Um, and so sometimes in meetings, one of the things I force myself to do is to not take notes with too many words. Uh, I ask myself to draw what's happening instead. And this doesn't always work, right? Some, some, some meetings you have to just write down quick things, especially if it's a, a very brisk meeting where there's lots of follow-up. Yeah. But every now and then, if I go and attend a conference, for instance, or if I'm listening to some new insights, or if I'm watching a TED talk and I happen to have pen and paper, I might take notes for myself, but just sketch them instead. Because I think that turns on a part of the brain that, again, I don't normally use. And that is quite handy. You know, it's a fun way to just grow a, a different muscle. So there's some drawing still, but writing is clearly the main way in which I I work on things.
0: And does this yeah. sketching is recorded somewhere or you just saw oh, no. I have it on a notebook. That's it. Oh, okay. I can show you some later if you want. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, that so drawing, writing, and correctly stick if you were to compare to your cousins. Like, how were you? How do you stand? Because you, you guys were a little bit different slightly, right? Yeah. Wow. How do you stand uh, on that?
1: I think... One other thing I guess I would have to say is that I was probably more introverted than most. I am an introvert at heart. You know, I I, I gather my energy on my own. Um, and that doesn't mean I don't like being with people. I love being with people. Uh, but I, I need to recharge my batteries, either alone or in a small group of people with whom I'm quite comfortable already. And that could be my family. It could be close friends as well. And I suspect, compared to some of my cousins, I mean, some of them are quite introverted as well. But I, I did notice that every now and then I would just need to do my own thing. You know, i go off on a walk by myself or just... I'd be quite happy curling up with a, with a book as much as I was out playing with my, with kites and, you know, being in the tent. So I did notice early on that I, I would need that introverted space. And again, that's a language that I only really began to understand much later on, you know, that, that introversion is just a personality preference. And once we understand it, we then know how to gather our energy as best as possible.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, one of the, the, the books that I really like the definition of introvert was actually is actually with is, by Susan Kane. Yes. Quiet. Um, Another good TED talk. Oh yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, highly recommended. And yeah. she, 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 talk about, uh, introverts having a huge funnel where they just get all the, what is that? External source stimulation in. Yeah. And versus actually have actually a more narrow funnel mm-hmm. where they can have a lot more that comes in, but they only take in less. So they actually have. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. More, I guess, energized versus introvert with overwhelmed. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It goes back to what I said earlier as so well. Remember when you asked me about the arborealist, right, and how right. I would approach things? And I said I would start by reading. Uh, that's probably a more introverted trait than most because it's starting by myself, exploring, making sense of things, and then only after that will I go out and talk to lots of other people. Um, you might find that a more extroverted way of doing it might be to just talk to lots of people first and then use that as a way of funneling the information. Like and that. neither is correct, right? You just find ways to yeah, do it that work I for like you. I
0: like that you also, you know, take on the later part where you also talk to people, which is, I think, a very, very important aspect uh, of, you know, gathering information. Uh, versus, you know, maybe I would consume myself more extrovert where I'll just ask about information Mm -hmm. first versus reading. But,
1: you know, you need to have both. Yes, I think that's the key, right? That that real balance, intellectual balance, emotional balance, psychological balance comes when we are reasonably able to work with both parts of our personality. Yeah. And, and I do think introverts have to learn how to be extroverts at some point, you know, and that's what we call learned extroversion. And extroverts, I think, at some point will also realize they want to be alone and to recharge, and both of that's okay. You know, it's just how we operate. Yeah, Well
0: actually, know? you know what? That's very interesting. I'm going to dive in a little bit uh, in, in, into that, um, which is, as an introvert, um, how did you learn to be extroverted? I mean, in whatever learned extroverted.
1: Oh, that's a sense. great question. Um, so there's a few things. Um, debating was actually a very good thing for me. I did a lot of debate when I was in school, especially the second half of secondary school and, and JC. Uh, and debating was great because it was a way of helping me to articulate my thoughts clearly as i could and then be able to communicate them to sometimes quite a large audience well, a right and, at least to... well. and in a high stress competitive environment yeah and it's actually quite interesting because quite a few debaters are actually very introverted you know because successful debaters don't just talk right they have to know how to listen as well and quite often that skill of listening is something that introverts bring with them not that extroverts can't do it they can but it's a more natural skill i think for for many introverts and so debating was a very key part of it and then Certain student activities, you know, I was a school prefect, for instance, um, and, and, and being interested in leadership as well meant that every now and then I would be out there, you know, in positions where I would have to communicate with quite large groups of people, not all of whom I know, and therefore not all of whom I'm comfortable with already. And there again, it, it's, a, it's a question of practice, you know. I think I keep going back to that theme of how when we practice, we can actually learn to do things uh, and, and acquire at least a basic level of functionality at it. And, and extroverting was very much that kind of thing, you know? just learning how to do it. I was a diplomat for a while when I was in, in the US as well, you know, in, in the foreign service. And there you have some things that introverts are go- need to be very good at, right? The ability to write reports and send analysis home. But how do you get your information? You have to talk to people. And sometimes that means we being able to walk around in a big room, either at a reception or a conference or at some other kind of event, and be able to to work that room. The image of working the room is really an extrovert skill. And it's something that I've slowly tried to acquire a little bit more competence at.
0: What are some of the best resources one can look into to learn extroversion? Because you talk about a, a few areas that they could, you know, yeah. put their self at to, to, to learn it, right? Like bathing. But I don't know if they have the time to, to, to ever do that. I mean, especially when you're out working, right? So sure. other than that, yeah. is there anything that, you know, as a yeah. doubt, yeah. Uh, is there anything that they can a spot that they can put themselves in or a like, resource they can learn. Well, I think firstly, start with the reading Susan Kane's book, Quiet.
1: Yes, because then you, once you understand introverts, you will understand what extroverts are as mm-hmm. well. And, and Susan Kane does give some ideas right, of how introverts can acquire these extroverting skills, even if they're not naturally extroverted. But what I would also say is, I don't think you learn about it theoretically. It's like trying to learn how to run you know, or learn how to swim. You have to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's only in the doing that we acquire the ability to build up the muscles. And muscles is the right way to think about it, I think, because you're, you're you're making it stronger each time through constant use. And if you don't use it, at some point, the muscle will start to tear away, right? As all of us who haven't been to the gym for a while and then go back will suddenly realize. Yeah. Um, so I think the key is do it. And do it in all the ways that you... Um, uh, allowed to, or find it easy to do, given your 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 work, you know. So if there's a new person, right, go and talk to them. That may not be something an introvert is naturally ready to do, uh, but kind of starting up that conversation is one way of developing the skill. And once you start doing that, it gets easier the second time, and the third time, and the fourth. Uh, put yourself in situations where you're giving a presentation right, and then taking questions during a meeting. That's quite an extrovert skill as well. Um, and again, it's something that introverts can acquire more than basic competence. I've seen introverts do this very powerfully because they've prepared well and they know how to use the material.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, coming out mm-hmm. from uh, RJC, Preppos mm-hmm. Junior College, um, what, what attracted you to choose those fields of study when you are in or oh, And also maybe to frame that question better is, why did you choose Oxford as well uh, than the rest? Because you literally have a pick of any university. I mean, I, 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 I
1: don't know about, like, I don't want to put words into you. <laughs> no, 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 fair enough. Yeah. Um, I chose Oxford quite early on, actually. So, the reasons were, were actually quite simple. I knew I, I needed to do something in the humanities. And when I say I needed to, what I mean is, I knew that those were areas I was deeply passionate about, passionate about, and interested in. And that I knew I would have fun exploring. You know? So I was in the humanities program in RJC and, and working on history. How to use the
0: humanities. I mean
1: uh, So literature, history and economics and geography. At at A level, I think those are the, the key examples. Yeah. Um I, I, I knew that those were things I cared about. And you know so as you said earlier, right, we do stuff that we're passionate in and that I think helps us to be meaningfully engaged and happy. And so I knew I wanted to do something in that sphere. Um, I thought about being a lawyer for a while, um, especially given I used to debate. You know, Lots of people say debaters become lawyers, um, which some do, but not all. True. Uh, many debaters do, do many other names, things. Yeah. As well. Yes, exactly. But many debaters do other things. And, and I realized a few things. One was I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to study some of the fields in the humanities in a bit more depth. So law is great; it's a professional degree, but I didn't want a professional degree. I wanted to enter public service because I was quite clear that um, I enjoyed the idea of being part of something that was larger than myself. You know? So contributing to to bigger causes and public sector work seemed like a good way to to do that. And therefore, the the degree that Oxford had—philosophy, politics, and economics—was in a lot of ways the most natural one to to do. You know, that's a degree that has been. It's described as what we uh, Oxford calls modern classics. You know? So it produces uh, many civil servants who move on into either political or public sector life you know, in the civil service. Um, and I thought, yeah, I, I like that. Right. The other reason I, I, I wanted to explore it is because I didn't really want to do a single subject in my degree. Going back to the idea of, of um, you know, polymath type behaviour right, or being interested in multidisciplinary work, I wanted a degree that would help me explore those connections to look at how different areas, so in this case, philosophy and politics and economics interacted with each other to produce complex outcomes in, in a society. And I felt that studying any one of those by themselves would not have given me that combination. So there are very few places in the world that offer that particular combination as a single degree, um, and Oxford seemed like the right place to do it.
0: What were some of the most more uh, big lessons or important lessons that you learned at uh, Oxford uh, New I don't know how to pronounce this. Am I going to, like, masterize the, the next School of Government? So,
1: the Blavannic School was more recent, actually. Okay. Yeah, that was where I did a master's degree in public policy. Uh, but the original degree was um, in Somerville College, uh, which was so the undergrad program in, in philosophy, politics, and economics. Yeah, and the key lessons... As an undergrad, the big lesson that I think I learned um, was to continually look for the connections amongst the, the disciplines because that wasn't always something that was readily told to us. You know, The lecturers would would introduce the content for their own discipline, but they wouldn't always find the connections. Uh, and that was up to us to, to look at based on the particular subjects that we chose to do and the particular electives you know, that we, we picked. So finding those connections was a key part of it. The other thing was that we did a lot of writing. You Wait, know? Let me so, dive into a little yeah, bit. Sure. Um... So they didn't spell it out to you that you
0: should be finding the connection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, when did you know that it was important and, and you know, and, I mean, I guess you, you really wanted
1: it. I instinctively wanted it. That's right. Because that's why I picked the degree. Um, and then I remember when I got there, I thought, okay, if this is not happening for us, then maybe we can find ways to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the introvert way of doing it would be to sit down and mull on it for a while and think it through, uh, which I enjoyed doing. But every now and then I try to also go and talk to people, right? And just... Get the, the the cohort together, you know, a few of us discussing things and figuring out oh, how can I learn from what you are gaining as your insights, and how can I share my insights with you. So those sorts of connections were were useful as well, I think.
0: Did you? So yeah. you're just saying the other point?
1: Yeah, the other point was you. about writing, you know, uh, because the crazy thing about Oxford, not just crazy, but also the wonderful thing about Oxford, is that you you are set to read for a degree. You don't study something; you read philosophy, politics, and economics. So you read history, you read English literature, because there's a lot of reading to do. And the reading is then channeled into essays that you write every week. And some might say that, oh, that's not a very great simulation of life. But actually, I found it a very useful set of skills to build up. Because when you're writing, you're processing and thinking and coming up with an independent argument each time, which I thought was a very, very useful thing to do. Because now, in public sector work, or my friends who are consultants, you know, we often find that we have to do that. We have to read very fast digest quickly, and then distill things into a two or three or four-page report. So it's made me a little bit less scared of deadlines as well. Because you know, I feel like I know I can, right? if I need yeah. to, produce something reasonably quickly. It may not be perfect, but that's okay. It just needs to be good enough. I don't think it needs to be perfect. And,
0: and, and on the note of on, on reading, because and... yeah, that fascinates me, right. I, I read so slow, I, I no idea how slow I read, like a snail. Uh, what, what are some of your your reading
1: skills that that you've acquired, you know. Well, to be honest, I don't think slow reading is a bad thing um because sometimes I think we skim too much in this day and age, you know. Everything's on the phone, it's so easy to just swipe through a, an article and just try and catch the main ideas. But I think what I learned as an undergraduate is how to do skimming when skimming is necessary, right? Get the broad ideas in a particular of a particular text or article. But also figure out, okay, on this idea, I want to go deeper, right? So I need to spend more time on it. And again, it was about finding the right balance between things. During term time in Oxford, I often found that I was running around and trying to do a lot of skimming so that I would get a broad overview of all the different things I was doing. And then once I had picked areas that I was really interested in, wanted to follow up on and do research on, I did a lot of that work during the either during the vacations or on weekends when I wasn't running around quite as frantically. Because sometimes I think you do need to just slowly read. You know, take take an hour and or two hours to read twenty pages, and then take notes and and really slowly digest the material. And
0: with the notes, and you mean, need are, both. Are, you, are you looking at just yeah. the title, or you know, then the content page?
1: Um, no, not just that. I mean, I would I would at least try and 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 work through you know an introductory chapter or one or two of the other chapters, but then skim and get the main ideas from the material, but not feel that I had to know all the examples immediately. Because you're not memorizing at that stage, right? You're reading for understanding rather than reading for for um, internalization. But the internalization will come later. So I do think fast reading has its place in life, and slow reading has its place in life. It's the same at work now. You know, there are some things which I will skim because I know that I may not need to, You know, if it's an article, I might look at it very quickly. But I try to make sure I know where to find it later. If I need to go back to it yes, and I look at it closely, then I'll make sure that I, I have it stored somewhere. Yeah,
0: Google Docs.
1: Google Docs, or you know, sometimes just making sure the link is there in, in uh, you know on, on my history so that I can go back to it yeah. easily. Yeah.
0: Do you have anyone in your life that has a huge impact on you choosing your path or you know shaping your um,
1: perspective? Yeah. Many, actually. I've been very blessed with many uh, mentors and. People who've given me that kind of guidance and, and influence. Um, going right back to primary school, I mean, my form teacher in primary two was a woman called Mrs. Daisy Chua, and she really got me started on writing. You know, she, I think she realized that I could story tell fairly well, and she encouraged it a lot. She made us do you know, uh, a long composition almost every week wow. you know, where we could come up with stories. And initially, she would just read us stories and have us retell the stories. But after a while, we could come up with stories of our own. And those were amazing opportunities, I think, to just learn what words and language can do. Um, so I was lucky there. My my form teachers in primary four, five, and six, you know, Mrs. Irene Lim and a woman called Mrs. Molly Lowe, um, again, both very, very strong teachers who, they would encourage me to focus not just on writing, but to try and be as all-rounded as I could be. To try and get good at even the things I was less natural at, and I think that made a huge difference. When I was in secondary school, uh, all my a whole bunch of teachers actually were very, very inspiring. There's a woman called Missus Lim Jeannie, who taught me in Sec One and Two English Literature, uh, my English Lit teacher in Sec Three and Four was Missus Rosie Smith. Again, very strong influence because they both encouraged me to build up the interest and passion that I had in their subject, but at the same time encouraged me to try and learn how to be a good leader how to serve communities and not just develop for my own sake. I think that made a difference. My math teacher, when I was in uh, SAC 3 and 4, so a man called Mr. Rajaram, who now is uh administrator at NUS, he also, I think, pushed me to make sure that I I acquired skills not just in the areas I was uh, naturally interested in, but in things like mathematics where I was... I I don't think I was the best mathematician in secondary school, far from it. But, you know, I was interested enough to at least acquire, I think... uh, A certain functional competency at it, so that that helps a lot. My tutors in JC, you know, very strong people. Uh, Again, particularly my English literature and my general paper tutors, very encouraging um, folks. A guy called Jeff Purvis, Mister Howard Clemens, and Missus Nicola Perry, um, all part of the humanities program, and very encouraging in terms of the the way they pushed us to challenge ourselves, you know, to be a little bit innovative in the arguments that we tried to play with to experiment with new techniques, to try new methods, uh, to have innovative interpretations of the, the books that we were studying. All that made a, a huge difference, I think. And then when I went to university, you know, I had one tutor, and two tutors in particular. Uh, my international relations tutor, Jennifer Welsh, and uh, my economics tutor, Judith Hare, who both pushed me to, again, to stretch as much as I could. I always could rely on them. right? No matter how hard I worked on a particular piece of, of writing, they would always find what was wrong with it. You know, and They would encourage me and tell me what was strong, but they would then also say, What about this? What about this thing that you've forgotten? Uh, and I knew that any question they asked me would always be a difficult question because it would force me to go and read some more or talk to more people and try and find new ways of understanding things. And I think that's what a good education is, right? It's one that stretches us as much as possible.
0: So it seems like all this are all. Uh, very, very good mentors and folks that have been sort yeah. of like, blessed to be on your journey yeah. uh, that have helped you to get to where you are. I okay. think um, mentors that you personally actively seek out. It's
1: a good question. Um, I guess there's more of that now in the you know in, in the civil service or in the world of work. You know, early on, I think teachers are there, right and they are they're wonderful, but they're, they they and, and they help all of us. But I, I also do think that if we're more proactive, teachers are often more inclined to give back to us, you know, because they they, they, they in a sense you're involved in a reciprocal relationship, and if they know that you're passionate, they're much more likely to encourage. Uh, but now in the world of work, I have had sometimes to you know actively seek out mentors. And, and yeah. I also just to
0: give some frame because I was speaking to all my friends. Uh, About mutual friend actually also Mm. telling me that actually in the world of uh, service, there's there's actually sort of a program where you are forced to find a mentor. um.
1: There may be more structured programs out there. Um, I was not part of of those. Um, So I remember being assigned things like a buddy. And there there are sometimes formal work mentors where you... Yeah, but you
0: say it's not very uh, productive for him at least. Right,
1: right. I I think a lot depends there on the match, right, between the person and the mentor, the mentor and the mentee rather. Um, and sometimes that sort of structured matching will work, but at other times, you know, if we haven't thought through the personality fit and the, the kinds of interest that people have, it may not always be the best fit. And I do think fit between mentors and mentees is a good thing. Um, and an important thing to have structure is useful. It's probably better than nothing, but I would say that it's enhanced if people get to choose their mentor. So I've had younger civil servants come up to me and say, can you be a mentor for me? And I'm happy to do that because I think that that's a, a better way to do it rather than try and. you know, force-fit personalities in, in an overly structured way. uh. But what I would add is, you know, many of my bosses have been very responsive if I go up to them and just say, I mean, I won't ask them, can you be a mentor, mm-hmm. right? Because that seems a bit stilted, I think, sometimes. Yeah. But it's nice just go to them and say, you know, if you can spare an hour, right? Could we have lunch and could I ask you some questions about you know, business. career moves yeah. and help me understand certain things. So, you know, former head of civil service, Peter Ho, is someone I think of, you know, as a, a mentor. Uh, now he's retired and I think he's mentoring many people you know, and, and sharing a lot of the wisdom that he accumulated in his 30 plus years as a, a public officer. Um, my my permanent secretaries in each of the ministries that I've gone to have always been you know, mentoring figures as well in with different styles. But, you know, they no one has ever said no when I go to them and say, can I have a, an hour of your time or half an hour of your time just to run some ideas by you and to talk to you about my my career plans?
0: Yeah. No, I, and I'd like to underscore this for people looking for mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think you, you bring up a point really uh, well is that uh, this whole mentor mentee relationship is very scary for anybody because it's like a huge time mm-hmm. commitment. If you think about mm-hmm. it. But I think if you would just frame it as a lunch situation or a yeah. coffee situation. That's uh, seeking wisdom. yeah, and, and, and you know, maybe, yeah, maybe the frame of, uh, although he or she might be your mentor, but it's just a lunch mentor.
1: That's right. right. Yeah. And you, like I said, you don't have to call it, you know, a very formal capital M mentor, right? You're just saying, let's have lunch and then I might pick your brains about something and you know, maybe they will ask you about something because actually reverse mentoring works too. Sometimes, you know, when I meet my, my younger mentees, I'll ask them what they're doing, you know, how are they doing in, in learning coding and what are the new things that they are interested in, because that helps me learn as well how to stay current and, and abreast of emerging technologies.
0: Um, and I guess, what are some key traits that you look out for in uh, a mentor, uh, or maybe for others who are mm. just starting on a journey to sort of... Uh,
1: yeah, I don't think I would generalize it. You know, I think you could, it really depends on what you're looking for. You know, if, if you need mentoring in a very specific field of content, then that should be what you're looking for, right? Someone who has deep expertise in that. Uh, but what you're looking for is maybe mentorship and more general things like how to manage a team or how to be a good leader in an organization or how to do innovation in a place like the public sector. Then I would say we need to talk to someone who's got experiences and stories that they can share in those things. Yeah, So I, I, it's not so much a, a generalized set of traits, right, right. but I guess at the heart, they but must be willing they, to share. Uh, you know.
0: Okay, yes. Yeah. So maybe a better question would be, what would be the difference between a good mentor and a great mentor?
1: Mm. A good mentor will be one who's willing to, at least you know, have that conversation that I was talking about, who will respond to the questions and share their own story. I think a great mentor is one who will also have the empathy to listen to what their mentee is asking them And maybe have the, both the intuition and the sense to, to understand where they are coming from and give them some additional advice or guidance that may not come from the mentor's own experience, but at least comes from the reading that the mentor has of of the person. So someone who, you know, who looks at me or if I look at someone else and say, you know, I don't have experience in what you're asking me about, right? But it seems to me that what you are looking for is to grow in certain ways. And maybe here are ways you can go about doing it.
0: So it seems yeah. like a mix of uh, humility, so knowing that he or she might not be able to answer the questions that you look for, but referring you to the right material, yeah, uh, and um, a little bit of uh, uh, empathy and understanding of where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, because I think, uh, and that's a big trait for anyone, because a lot of people don't uh, actually listen. <laughs> right. And we and, and can be kind they, of. Yeah, they listen, but they don't hear. <laughs> yeah, a mentor that that listens and you know yeah. prompts further questions,
1: yeah. um, and then then come out with answer. Uh, yeah, or oh, if not an answer, then at least better questions, mm. you know, and and ways of finding the answer because mentors may not have all the answers, or sometimes the question is one that is so complex that there isn't a simple answer to it. You know? Then if you don't have that, then you need to start asking better questions. Yeah,
0: and just on the flip side to you know being good, let's talk about some most common mistakes of of mentoring when you know um are there any that know you, you uh, because being a mentee for for years mm. are there any common mistakes that that i mean i think one being the listening part right you know that, that right. that's right. you should definitely listen yeah.
1: are there any other i mean this is the listening part i would go as far as to say that a good mentoring conversation should involve the mentee talking more than the mentor, actually. Because the mentor should be asking questions and, you know, kind of probing into the issues that are being explored before they start sharing or you know, trying to, to give insights. So so listening is definitely a key part of it, or failing to listen is, is a common error. Um, assuming that you must have answers is another one. Because sometimes a good mentor just helps you to say, well, maybe you're not asking the right question. Maybe you should be asking this question or another question instead. And I don't have answers to that, but maybe that gives you an insight, right? So that I think is useful helping people to frame new questions and not always feeling they must have answers. Um, and then the third thing is assuming that you must always share your experiences because, yes, people want to hear your story, but their story might not be completely transferable to their situation, especially these days because change happens so fast, right? Technology changes so quickly. Um, whether it's in the public sector or you know in, in the community work that I do, if I think about when I started doing it, right, in the early 2000s versus what the world is like now, Technology has changed, right? The ways in which we interact with one another has changed. Um, we use social media much more extensively now, and that is a world that not all mentors will necessarily be able to work with. Yeah. yeah.
0: Let's do a side step and move into right. to, to poetry a little bit. Right. Uh, yeah. What 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 is your when is your first introduction to poetry? Wow, um,
1: definitely in primary school. I think no, you know that's not true. I think all of us get introduced to poetry when we learn nursery rhymes, right? We learn about the way words work and what rhythm and music sounds like in language. And yeah, so I think it was nursery rhymes, you know, and then going to school and, and realizing that you know, these are parts of, of larger stories, right? There are books there that we can read and, and get exposed to even more of the, the, the musicality of this, this language. Uh, so poetry, I think, started there from when I was very young. When did I start writing my own? I think around primary three, primary four, you know lots of rhyming poems that I look at now and I think, hmm, they are all necessary pieces. You know, I, I, I believe that all, everything a writer writes is necessary. Yes. Um, and sometimes it may not be a great piece, but it's a necessary piece to get you to the next one and the next one and the next one. Yeah. Um, so that, that is the idea of craft as well. You know, you're building up the writing muscle all the time. Uh, so yeah, it started a lot in primary school and then it kind of got more formal in, in secondary school. with something called the Creative Arts Programme. Okay. Uh, it's a program that MOE and NUS run for people who are interested in writing. And you know, they we go through a week-long residential seminar. And then after that, if we're interested, a mentorship program as well. Now, writing mentorship is, of course, a bit different from the mentorship we just talked about. Because there, the, the mentor is actually giving feedback on the writing, you know, and trying to help the young writer to find their voice. And I was very, very uh, blessed to have two wonderful mentors when I was in school. Um, both poets, you know, Miss um, Ho Po Fan. Uh, who used to be a teacher at RJC and is now, has now uh, retired, and Associate Professor Dr. Li Zhu Ping, who used to be part of NUS and has now also retired. So both wonderful mentors who helped me to, I think, figure out what my own voice was like and how I could amplify that in the writing that I do.
0: And for someone, because I have zero clue about poetry art at all, how, how, how would you, know, you introduce poetry to another person? Like, how, you know, to wrap it up, I'll head around poetry. It's a good question, you know.
1: Um, I guess for someone who isn't already acquainted with poetry, right, what would I do? I would start off by maybe asking them what their favourite nursery rhyme was because I'm pretty sure everybody has one or what their favourite song is because the best nursery rhymes and the best songs are poetry, right? They're about how words create sounds and images in our minds to convey a certain idea or, or message, right? And then help them to then figure out what is it that they like about that? And why do you like Mary Had a Little Lamb versus Jack and Jill Went Up the Hill or, you know, any other of the... Eminem, the rap, right? Exactly, right? What is it about it that's interesting? And often people will say one of a few things, right? They might say that it's the, the content, right? There's some interesting uh, lines there that help them to think about the world in a new way. Right. And that's what poets would call similes or metaphors, right? You are using images and when you say something is as slow as a snail, right? You're using the snail to emphasize what slowness is. That's a tool that, that poets use. So you might be interested in the content, but some people are interested in the beauty of the sounds as well. You know, what, what Robert Frost calls sound sense, you know, the, the musicality of the, the material, and then realizing that just listening to it, you also get an image of what's going on. Right. So that there are lines in poetry where if you repeat the, the letter S, for instance, that can create the image of, of the whispering of leaves, or the whispering of the wind, for instance. And so the sound matters as well. And when you put that together, right, the content, the images, as well as the sound and the music, that's what poetry is about, I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because in writing, there isn't any, uh, I mean, maybe poetry falls under one a subset of, mm-hmm. of, of writing. And I guess that pretty much uh, shined a spotlight, the two points that you just mentioned.
1: No, yeah, I think so. I think those two, I mean, all writers would do that to some extent, but poetry in particular needs original images, original content and sound sense that is particularly beautiful, you know? Um, And the best journalists will have it, the best prose and nonfiction writers will have that as well. Um, In fact, if you ask me, some of the greatest novelists in the world, people like Salman Rushdie and, and William Golding, their prose is poetic. Um, but, you know, people draw artificial distinctions sometimes between that. And, and some, some poetry can be very prose like in, in, in other ways. Um, yeah.
0: And on a personal note, what does poetry mean to you in your current season of life?
1: Uh, it's a good question. I've always been writing, I guess, like I said, since I was very young. And I do think of poetry as part of a, a calling. You know, it's it's something I cannot choose not to do. I can I can stop it for a while, but it will always come back. I like to say that the words are kind of swimming around in the head and in the heart, you know, and then eventually they will come out. Um in fact I, I, I'm a big believer in the fact that sometimes we don't really write the poems ourselves. You know, the poems are actually out there. And the writer becomes the the conduit for the the poem to be expressed. Uh and it's quite nice when you think about it that way, because that also means that you know, not every poem needs to be utterly and totally perfect, but we are just mediums through which the the, the content is articulated, uh, and that's what it means for me. You know, it's 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 a it's a calling, it's a vocation, and it's a, it's something that I don't just do as an analytical thing, right? It's 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 emotional, it's physical as well. Um, one one another, you know, of my poetry mentors, a uh, Professor Edwin Tambu from NUS, he always says that when you read and you write poetry, you don't just write it with the the head, right? It's not just a mental or intellectual process. You write poetry and you read it with your whole being. Everything about you is being invested in that poem, and I think that's what it is. That's why you can't turn it off, because it's it's such a part of everything that the poet does.
0: Got it. I like it. Give me a good uh, sense of reference now uh, to approach this uh, uh, very. It's kind of like high end art, you know. Is you know, I mean, not inside you feel like a, a, a just a, a stupid idiot that, you know, <laughs> go to this event and then like, I have no idea how to look at this pain and try to make an understanding of it. But I think the the way how you just said it, it, it gave me a very good film of reference to yeah, approach that is, topic.
1: It doesn't need to be high end art, right? I mean, nursery rhymes are not high end art. Some of these, the ancient ballads, the songs that we know, they're not high-end. Everybody has access to them. These were things that were sung by the minstrels in villages, you know, or by by itinerant groups of, of performers. And they would move around different parts of the world and sing their songs and recite their poems. That's where poetry started. And I think it'd be really useful if more of us could do that, actually, to get this out to more people, right? And to help people understand that there is poetry in everything not just in stuff that is obviously high-end. Yeah. Agree, agree, agree.
0: Um, turning to another point, you know, moving down to... Actually, this question is a very, very loaded question, so please dissect it however way you want. Um, I have this generalizing theory of people who are very good at academics... Uh, they haven't learned to fail yet, and there's a, a lot of power in, in in being able to fail, and uh, uh, the power of failure. Yeah. And so I I have the the theory is that you know people haven't learned to fail, uh, and then when they they put on this position, they're playing defense, you know, and and the problem with playing defense is playing
1: defense in in what
0: in in their work in the in, in their work where 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 because uh, I don't want to try this new idea because this old thing still works kind of situation. So, I mean, just what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it's a very powerful question, first of all, because I do think you're right. There is something quite educative about failure, but it's important to not over-glorify it either. When we talk about failure being an important set of lessons and how it's necessary, actually for innovation, right? You can't innovate if you don't fail. Um... You need to experiment, and experiments by nature involve either failing or succeeding. You don't know beforehand which of those is going to happen. Um, So I do think that it's a really important set of skills to acquire. The key is how do you fail in a way that allows you to learn, right? If you just fail and you wallow in the failure for a while and then nothing changes about what you do then that's almost a double failure right you failed in what you set out to do and then you don't even learn anything from it but I think it's when the, the failure comes with reflection that you are able to then say okay how do I bounce back from this what else can I do to operate better right? or do things in a different way so just to give some examples on this right I think for instance I don't think of the word failure as even necessary now. It's really a case of we, we really should learn how to do small experiments, right? Test our ideas out so that we, we do that in a low-cost way. And eventually, we find ourselves in situations where we can do bigger experiments because we've learned from the initial ones. So, there was some time ago, for instance, where I, I wanted to set up a new laboratory, you know, in, and I called it a gaming lab, right? It's a It's a game lab where, in the civil service college, we were using games to teach civil servants about complexity, right? How to manage in complex circumstances. And that kind of thing can be quite a big project, right? It can involve a lot of funding, because you need to get resources to hire people, to design the games, and then to run them as well. And... Initially, when I I remember I broached the idea to some of the my, my peers as well as my bosses, there was a lot of pushback you know, to say, oh, maybe we don't do this now. Let's try it later. Are you sure it's going to work? And I remember thinking, okay, never mind. We don't have to start big, right? Let's just start small. Right? Try one game first. Learn from it. Figure out what works and what doesn't work. Then try again. Apply those lessons. Figure out what worked and didn't work. And then keep iterating that material. So rather than think of it as, oh, I failed to start it at the start, I just tell myself, no, if I want to get from here to there, there are 10 steps in between. I will take the steps along the way, and each time I will learn from them as much as I can. So then what you're doing is you're having small failures produce insight, produce lessons, and produce education, which then allow for ultimately a certain amount of success. Yeah. So I think even the framing of failure is, is not always the, the best one that we can use. And this is not to say, oh, we should all set out to fail. you know. But we should set out to experiment. We should set out to learn and that will come sometimes from success and sometimes it will come from, you know, something that is less than perfect. And if it's less than perfect, then we must reflect on it and figure out what went right and wrong so that we can learn the next time and the time after that.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and yeah, failure is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a touchy word. I mean, I still haven't read my, what's a, a better way to, 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 I mean, you say it as experiment. I think, I mean, some people also say it as, uh, 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 steps
1: to your success. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Yep. Um, and to realize that, you know, if you're, like I said, you're moving from one place to another, it's not a straight line sometimes, right? You might need to take a few steps forward, a few steps back. You might have to go in curly-whirly lines, right? And and But eventually you get there, right? And we mustn't presuppose that the journey is going to be this neat line. Sometimes it's a really messy process. I'm sure you've seen those diagrams, right, where instead of a line, it's just this mass of just sprawls and curls, and then eventually you figure it out and you get there. Yeah. yeah, And I think that's what life is like, right? Earlier I said something about how we you know, we deal much more with complex issues these days, right? And the more complex the stuff is, the more we must allow ourselves to fail. Because in, it is precisely in those failures that we will learn from uh, you know, the experience and be able to move further on. But I should add one more thing, yes. by the way. When I said earlier that we don't glorify failure. right? What I mean is this. There are failures from complexity, like the ones I just described, which are very useful to learn from. But there's another type of failure, right? That's failure of complacency. And failure from, failure from complacency is things like carelessness. It would be things like, you know, you, you know when you, you write a document, you make typo errors in them because you didn't bother to check them properly. It means things like not verifying facts, right? A journalist cannot afford to not verify facts or someone who's a writer, right? They don't do their research and they do it in a sloppy way and then something turns out to be factually wrong. Those are errors of complacency, I think. And that kind of failure, I don't think we should overly tolerate because those are things we can easily correct for, right? You correct for it by due diligence, you correct for it through a certain amount of care and meticulousness. So with my team at work and in my community groups, I'm very clear to all of them. I will not tolerate Failure from complacency, because those are avoidable failures. But failure from complexity, I'm more than happy to tolerate because we can't avoid those. We must learn from them.
0: Yeah, this is a good way to,
1: to 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 think about it. Yes, mm-hmm.
0: and yet here you are. You know, uh, uh, you know, like pushing boundaries uh, <laughs> and trying out new things. Um,
1: trying to yeah. yes,
0: yes, yeah. in in in. Uh, uh, yeah, w- <laughs> just, just trying to put labels again. Uh, on in, in a the world where less innovation is happening, in the circle. Um, um, I'm not not sure, by the way, <laughs> not sure. Um, but that's just the, how the stereotype uh, maybe is surrounding that. What what has happened? What event has happened in your
1: life that made you so different from the rest? I'm not sure that I am that different, you know. To be honest, um, and I know I know this is a website called Misfits, so we need to be different somehow, <laughs> yeah. right? Um. But like I said, I guess it's a it's a combination of support in the early years to to realize okay I can try right I've I've been encouraged to try and 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 do things in a slightly different way. Um, it comes from the fact that I guess I don't have an easy label, you know. So earlier on, it was trying to help people understand that yeah, you know, this guy is kind of Indian, but. Does some things that Malay people do because he's Muslim and he's got this Eurasian side of his family, which is also very prominent. Yes. And you know, I care a lot about all of them. And and the idea is then I don't need to fit into an easy box. Mm. Then later on, it became okay, public sector poet, you know, community work, volunteer teacher. I, I am all of those things. You know, I don't have to choose amongst them. Um, and I've always felt that I don't have because you don't have to choose. Then the labels don't matter quite as much because mm-hmm. you are both all and none of the labels at the same time. Um, and, and I think that's what's helped push me lah, to, to really say, okay, don't worry about the label. Just, if there's important work to be done, let's get it done. Mm. And then along the way, in, in, in the work as at least, or even in, in things like community groups with Mandaki and Sinda, I've always benefited from having, you know, strong, um, mentors and, and patrons, you know, people who've encouraged me to say, yeah, go ahead and try, right? And, and then we will give you support if it doesn't happen to work out quite as well.
0: Do you have a favourite failure that in retrospect plan a seat for success
1: uh, later in life? <laughs> I do like that question. Um, favourite failure. Maybe that's what we should all have. Is <laughs> pick a favourite failure so that we don't see them as quite as negative you know, as... as
0: we are trying to frame it very positively, yeah, yeah.
1: That's right, yeah. A favourite failure. I know organisations, for instance, that do things, uh, give out a glorious failure award. A failure that generates a lot of learning wow. for, for everybody else. Um, yeah, companies are in, in, in part, certain parts of the world that, that do that, which I think is a very powerful thing. But my own favorite failure... Hmm. I mean, we can come back to it. We just let it sit for a while. We can sure. come back to that. Yeah, why don't we come back to it? Okay. Let me mull on that first.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so the next question is, you know, um, how, how how is the day like being a, you know, a uh, 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 deputy director in the ministry of trade and industry you know how how, yeah. how does this um uh, your day looks like in, in... yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> to be quite honest there is no typical day okay the work involves a range of things. You know, it involves working with the economic development board on the manufacturing and services sector. Maybe let's just do yeah.
0: a do a framing into sure. how about the, the, the trade and industry. Like how would
1: people wrap their head around this? Sure, you know, sure. No, I Yeah. I mean it's it's a big ministry. The the trade part of it is really about the international connections and relationships that we have, either with countries or with groups of countries, you know, that allow us to encourage more free trade to take place in the world. Because Singapore is a small and open economy, is you know, strongly reliant on open markets and, and, and a liberal trading um, arrangement. Um, on the industry side, which is where my team does um, all of its work, we are interested in how we grow the domestic economy. Right? And that might include bringing in MNCs to Singapore, but also growing our small and medium enterprises, encouraging startups, making sure that resources like manpower and capital and land are available for industrial growth. Um, and making sure that we have the energy resources to also, you know, grow the economy, right? In a world, of course, where carbon constraints are getting increasingly acute, right, and where you know we have commitments, um, uh, internationally to make sure that overall global levels of of carbon are actually in the long term going to be reduced. So that's the the broad area of the work. The areas that we work on in particular, in my team, are in manufacturing and services and the tourism sectors. So we're involved in figuring out how do we grow those. Um, essentially it's about how, you know, Singapore gets marketed as a destination that is attractive for businesses on the, the manufacturing and services side, as well as for people. And that's what the tourist side is about, you know, tourists in terms of leisure tourists, but also business tourists and how we can encourage them to to be here. So why I say there's no typical day is because on some days I might be working a lot with the Economic Development Board on, you know, their investment strategies and the kinds of companies they're working to, to bring in. And they they do a lot of the hard work, of course, but every now and then, you know, some of the policy guidance comes from the, the ministry. Uh, and then on tourism, that includes things like you know, making sure that there is enough space for new attractions to be built. It includes making sure that our integrated resorts, you know, on the economic side, uh, are doing well and that their attractions and hotels are strong. Uh, it includes things like making sure the annual Formula One race goes as well as it can. Uh, and of course, you know, we have a wonderful race promoter who does a lot of that work. Yeah. But because we are a land, uh, rather a, a night and and street race. We have a lot of coordination to do because there's road closures to take care of, security and safety issues. So we try and facilitate the relationship with the rest of the government in terms of getting the right approvals. Yeah. So there's no typical day.
0: Yeah, it there's sounds a very wide-ranging yes. uh, uh, from technical uh, problems to 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 global broad strokes of yep. policy making right.
1: that could help facilitate the growth right. in, in those areas. And, and very complex because you have to work through other people. I can't do it all myself, right? I have to work through agencies, I work through companies, and work through, um, you know, partners. And I think that that's the the nature of the most meaningful work these days. The more mm-hmm. we want to do things that have scale and impact, the more we have to work through others. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: oh, you're you're so right. And and you know, I actually, want to do a follow up to that question. But before that, um, just a just a quick one on your per, your personal definition of a silver seven. <laughs> <laughs> <gasps> right. <laughs> that's a good question. You know, if you were to introduce your work, um, as a civil servant to an office and, right, just work there? Okay. What, what else, you
1: know? Yeah, no. that's a good question. So there, there's a whole range of it, right? There is, there's analysis work that we do whereby we, we, you know, at, at heart, the civil servant serves the government of the day, right? And through that, we serve Singaporeans, right? We make sure that there are, that the government works as effectively as it can, um, you know, as efficiently as it can. Uh, but also in a way that meets the needs of citizens. And we do that in support of the, you know, the like I said, the the political, what we call the political masters. Right? They are the ones who are elected. They have a mandate to enact certain policies and we help them to enact those. Uh, but we also do analysis and we will tell them what the costs and benefits are of the things they want to try and do so that we can come to a decision that serves the larger purpose of Singapore as much as possible. So that's the, the the broad role of civil servants. And then within different areas, of course, you will do different things, right? So in the trade and industry ministry, we're interested in how do we grow the economy so that we have jobs for Singaporeans, right? That's the, the core purpose of what we do. In the Ministry of National Development, you might focus on making sure that land use is done in a considered and effective way so that we maximize the space that we have because we don't have a lot of space in Singapore and we need, I think, that space to be, you know, as, as efficiently used yeah. as possible. You know, the Ministry of Social and Family Development, on the other hand, will be there to make sure that, um, issues relating to society and family are taken care of. That we give people support where they need it. That those who are in, in need of, of particular assistance from government receive it. And that, you know, the rest of us are providing enough into the taxes that we pay to, to have the, the resources to make those payments. Uh, you know, so it's, it's multiple different things, right? And, And that's why it's so multifaceted. You know, because we have government encompasses so many different aspects of of people's lives. Yeah,
0: I mean, yes, I can't. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's hard for me to wrap my head around uh uh, uh uh definitely because like if I were to meet someone on the street or you know someone come up to me and you know and if I were to say that they are or oh, you should definitely join the silver service, like what are like. Yeah, what are their key traits, or what are things that they are interested in when they, when you know, when you yeah. tell someone that they are
1: that yeah. the should maybe consider that the civil service. Um... The best definition I have heard actually comes from DPM Teo, who is the you know the minister in charge of the civil service, and he says that at heart, right? Never mind all the individual areas that people are working on, because those are very different, as yeah. I pointed out. But at their core, a good public officer is one who derives happiness from the happiness of others. So you, what matters to you is that you are serving a cause that's bigger than yourself and that allows you to have in, sometimes indirectly impact on the people around you. That I think is, is at its core what's necessary because, you know, different people are motivated by different things, right? If you're motivated by, you know, a high salary, then the civil service is probably not the best place for you, right? We are reasonably paid, but we're not overly paid right? And we certainly wouldn't make as much as say a management consultant or an investment banker sure. or a high-flying lawyer and that's fine because um, most of us are not in it for that anyway, right? Some people are in this, in, in a job because they want the pace, right? They want to constantly be doing something different and maybe if you want to do that, you might want to be a journalist, right? Or you might want to be, be doing work that allows you to you know, actually explore those new areas all the time. Uh, but if you're interested in doing things that affect causes that are bigger than you, then actually the civil service is not a bad place.
0: Um,
1: I guess also, you know, being in the silver
0: service sector, uh, you must need to deal with a lot of traditionalists. And I've been, I mean, traditionalists might be an innovative person 20 years ago, right, but right. To, in, in today's day and age might be a traditionalist, what we call traditionalists, right? And what are, what are some of the effective tools in the toolbox that one can deploy to
1: stretch their mind a little bit and maybe change their yeah. point of view? Hmm. That's a good question. But I, I like where you're coming from with that question because you, you know, you, you've, you've not assumed, as many people do, that the government is monolithic. Sometimes people assume that you know, there's only one viewpoint that exists in government. I mean, there's 120,000 people in the government. There's going to be multiple perspectives and you know, different views, different interests right, on, on each issue that's out there. And you're right. That's on some things, people can be very innovative and on others, they might be a little bit more, more traditional. The first thing I would say is that the traditionalist is not always wrong sometimes there are good reasons why we do certain things and we might want to keep doing those. For instance, I'm also probably not an innovator when it comes to things like taxation. Right? I don't think you want to be asking people how much taxes they should pay, for instance. I mean, there is a macro decision that we make on what taxes, tax decisions are, and I think we should stick to, to those. But I am a bit more of an innovator when it comes to things like, how do we involve citizens in the policy process? You know, how do we not assume that government always has the answers, but allow for the fact that actually government may have certain biases too, And we want to talk to people so that we understand what their needs actually are, so that we can respond to those in the most effective way. And I think we're seeing more and more of this in things like the Singapore Conversation and some of the public consultation exercises that have started for different areas of policy. So how do you convince people of that, that it's valuable to do? Because I think that's a very important question. I think the first thing is, don't make it a... an overly large decision that you are asking people for, right? If you go up to a decision maker and say, "I want to spend X million dollars on this new idea," cannot, cannot. They're obviously going to look at you and say no, right? Because you, a, you've given them no background, you've given them no um, persuasion on why it's useful. And I, sometimes I feel I feel that the longer, the the bigger the decision is, the longer you need to give people to adjust to it. It's human nature, right? We take time to get used to a new idea. And the best way to do it is to start, I think, in a very, very slow, you might almost call it a guerrilla uh, kind of method. You know, uh, And what I mean by that is you, you just slowly feed ideas into the system. Circulate an article, right? Send a podcast around. Send a link to a TED video or any other video, right? Then you slowly seed the ideas in. Then two weeks later, say, oh, you know that video I sent? Here's another article about it. Here is an example of a country that's actually doing it or a country that's doing something that we can maybe modify for ourselves right? Or if there isn't anyone doing it, maybe you can say, you know that video I saw? I'm thinking about this idea. What do you all think, right? So you're not asking for a decision, you're just slowly seeding material and start a conversation. And then eventually, someone might come to you and say, why don't we do this, right? Or you might be able to go up to them and say, remember that article I said? Here's how we should actually, maybe we can try and do something about it. Get a like-minded person, what we call a fellow traveler, you know, a fellow traveler along the way. And then along the the way you build the discussion further and you might be able to say to a, a senior person, right? Would you support this if we try this? What do I need to do to make the idea better? So again, you're not asking for a decision. You're just saying, if I want to do this, how do I make it better? Right? And you make it a very gradual thing. And then eventually, when you get to innovate, it won't just be your idea because you've built a movement around you of people who care and are interested and are supporting the kind of work that you do. So that's, it's gorilla because it's not obvious, right? It's a very slow, gradual process. But I think that is how large, complex systems change. They don't change simply because one person dictates a change for other people. They change best when there is that gradual patience. But for that to happen, the innovator must have two qualities. One, patience. Because if you are, if you, if you want everything to happen immediately, it will not happen, right? This is a campaign. It's not a seat, not a simple event where do or die, you must succeed. So you've got to have patience. And the second thing is, you must not care where credit goes. If you care that you are given the credit, then you probably won't be sharing these ideas quite as much. But if you share and other people slowly come on board and everybody gets credit at the end, then your your idea actually becomes successful. So the best innovators I have seen are the ones who don't care about who gets the credit.
0: Wow, I love it. And let me just add uh, something on, on top of that, which is... Um, Reason so two points that you made right. One is um why you need to have patience, and the reason why you need to have patience in a huge organization. And I heard someone talk to tell me about this being in the business or you know in in whatever big organization there is. Is that every action, small actions that a person make, a decision to make, cause ripple. Yes. and if this ripple is not planned well, uh your idea would fail very very easily and so it takes great uh it takes i think i guess it takes great wisdom to know that the implementation is 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 important and and to know that and you need to have uh, i guess the the foundation is patient and then the 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 second point you were making uh uh was the the crediting um yeah about you know not having an ego on the idea that you have Mm. And um, I guess a person who really echoes that in one of my interviewees is Jack Sim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and he, re- when he do world Holler organization, yeah. he just do it because it solves a problem and he wants this problem to be solved. Yeah. And if you, anyone else want to join him on the, you know, he's very easy in giving out mm-hmm. credits. And he's, he's like, I don't, yeah, I'm old already, mm-hmm. I don't, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, 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 I guess this is one of the key traits of how successful World Health Organization. I think, so. I think so. Yeah. Being innovative, I guess, you know, you are always on that, 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 that topic a lot. And I guess the question to you is that, are there any practices or activities that one can take on to be more flexible in thinking out of the box. Um, Yeah. You know, because you talk about narrative, right? Being There's a huge narrative that, you know, comes to us being the little red dot. And it's so ingrained and, and very deeply rooted, this narrative. And I guess... You know, are there any, uh, yeah, practices that one can take on to solve, like maybe disengage or to test those uh, narratives?
1: Absolutely. Um, read, first of all, because that's where, where new ideas come from, where right? at least be exposed to what other people are, are working on and the things that they care about enough to put into a book or on a website or in an article are going to be, chances are, I think, useful challenges to our own mental models. But not just that. I do think travel is important. Uh, you know, so don't just read and theoretically know about stuff, but go out and see things, right? See what companies are like elsewhere. See what societies are like. See how towns organize themselves and how cities organize themselves. And th- so don't just go on like a tour, right? But go and like visit the back alleys of places and th- go and explore a place and see how the lived reality of it actually is. Uh, so travel is key. Uh, two more things. One, talk to people who make you uncomfortable. Right, So the ones who you know, might give you a slightly odd feeling and you don't know why, but talk to them. Chances are one of the reasons why is because they think in a different way. They see things you don't see and any kind of pricking at our assumptions can make us uncomfortable, which I think is useful. So putting ourselves in that discomfort is useful. And then every now and then, just doing something that you haven't actually done before. Now, this doesn't have to be bungee jumping, right? Um, but it could be you know, just visiting a new place. It could be trying out a new activity or a new sport. Um, and doing things that you didn't always feel you were naturally good at. And it's okay to suck at it the first time, right? That's fine, I think. Uh, but try anyway, right? Because then I think you you will learn things about yourself that at the very least will trigger a part of your brain that was not working before. Yeah. And then the last thing, sorry, I, I know I said two things, but one more actually strikes me as very important. Please. I do think, and this is not going to be obvious, but I think it's important. I think some amount of contemplative practice is also very important because if you're only out there doing the new stuff and reading, but not allowing yourself to digest the material, then you might lose some of the insights that come from it. So when I say contemplative practice, I mean things like it could be, you know, the very obvious stuff is yoga and meditation, um, where you let your mind rest so that when it comes back into high gear, you will remember and see connections that you didn't quite see before that. That's one way. But another way could also be things like, you know, going on a long run and just focusing on the run for a while, right? So that's a physical kind of contemplation. Uh, some people like to do journaling, right, where they write down the stuff that they've done. That's fine as well. But I think having some kind of contemplative practice is useful because it allows the innovation to actually gestate and eventually emerge like, and, and be expressed because otherwise it's just, it can often stay at the back of your mind and not get articulated in any way.
0: Great. G- all good answers uh yeah especially yeah i mean just traveling is probably the
1: easiest thing the lower the lowest hanging fruit yeah. that one could yeah. just uh, uh take off correct and travel need not even be to foreign places right it could be to a place in your own country or your own area that you haven't seen before mm-hmm. sometimes travel could also be just taking a different route to work
0: yeah and um uh, uh, i just got introduced to this term called the fenora uh, right. Have you heard of it? No. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a French definition. I, I probably would be bad at describing it, but basically just walking around, uh, the city and having a sort of like, maybe I'm just trying to find 10 old school bus stops right. in Singapore. Right. And right. that's sort all of like, the, the yeah. like, like having an adventure in the same geographical land because yeah. we tend to always have this utilitarian use of the land and we forgot to, to open our eyes to, yeah. to, to see new things. Yeah. And then having for no exercises. Nice. It's, I like that. Yep yeah uh this question might be also sort of like linked back and and if it does, just let me know, because um we have a mutual friend over here uh you know uh that have left uh the the silver the sector okay. and um you know it, it seems to feel that the reason they're they're leaving is because they don't feel as impactful. To the work that uh, uh, they can be or they want to be impacting on, mm-hmm. and hence moving to the private sector where their own personal uh, impact is greater. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, how do you recommend these people to sort of like skirt the situation, or and you know, and then the next question will actually be the skill set to to polish to be more impactful, which I'll link back to the last question, but I mean, different take.
1: Sure. No, I think those are very powerful questions because to some extent, I think we just need to realize that all professions, all sectors actually have both uh, highest purpose and uh, what I would call you know, the, the less than desirable side, the dark side, if you like. You know, it's very Star Wars, right? Yes, um, yes. There's a dark and a light to everything. But I'll tell you what I mean by this, right? The public sector, when it is serving its highest purpose, right, has scale and impact, right? Long-term impact uh, on a very large number of people because of the reach of public policy and because of the reach of institutions. So I think that's quite quite core. But the public, and and that's at its best, right? But at its worst, and we all have this, the public sector at its worst can be a bit slow, right? And like your friend said, they, they might feel a bit frustrated. It doesn't always be as welcoming to Mavericks as, as I think it should. You know, we need a few people in the system actually who are pushing at the boundaries. Um, but that's, that's the public sector. And then the private sector, actually, its great strength is its speed, right? Its agility and its constant fluidity and response to, to circumstances. Um, because it has to worry about things like making profits and, make, and making sure that revenue streams are constant. But the, the and that's the highest purpose of the, the private sector. But the dark side of the p- private sector is that it can be very greedy sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Taken to an extreme, it can be extremely greedy and it can be motivated only by profit rather than, you know, these broader aims like corporate social responsibility and things like that. Then you, that's where you bring in civil society, right? Civil society at its best, serving its highest purpose, is actually doing the idealistic work, right? The dreaming of what can be better which a greedy private sector entity will not always do. But civil society can also have a dark side, right? At its worst, it can be a bit narrow, focus on a specific cause, but not realizing that there are ripples and interactions, as you pointed out, right, with multiple other areas. And what's the counter for that? It's the public sector's strength, right? The scale and the reach that it actually has. So maybe I'm a bit too philosophical about this, right? But I do think that we need to recognize that all sectors actually have both this highest purpose and uh dark side. And the job of each of us is we need to find a sector where its highest purpose fits with our highest purpose. And then we make sure that the dark side is minimized.
0: Um, I wish, uh, I think this should be a a, a foundational lesson for everyone who are, are thinking of joining the civil service.
1: Yeah, or, or any, anything, right? If you want to join the media, then know what its highest purpose and what its dark side is. And the key is this, right? Yeah. The key, when you, when you realise that there are these highest purposes and dark sides, for me, it's, it's, it's very important. You cannot compare the highest purpose of one sector with the dark side of another, mm. right? It is useless to say things like, oh, but public sector has reached. How come you are so greedy, right? Or the, the private sector saying, at my best, I am so fast and so responsive. How come you are so slow? It's like those are inbuilt, natural parts of what we are, and we have to know how to manage them. Yeah. So when I, the thing that is most meaningful for me is compare the highest purpose with the highest purpose, compare the dark side with the dark side, and then find ways to manage the dark side. And then for those who are truly innovative, as they move into the future, try and create organizations that com- that combine all the, the strengths, all oh. the highest purpose, without Minimize the dark the side. Those are your, your organizations of the future and they can be enabled by technology. They can be enabled by, by innovative thinking. I think it's possible, you know. And you, you're, you're seeing that somehow now, right? There are these entities that are kind of public sector, but not entirely. And there's a bit of gov- of public, private sector in them and a bit of civil society, right? Why is it that when government consults, we create committees that involve so many different sectors? Because we're trying to simulate a bit of the highest purpose of everything while canceling out the dark sides. So I, I think that's quite important. And once we see that, we also recognize that you know our job is not to belittle each other. It's to find ways to make our highest purposes realized without giving too much space to the dark sides. Yeah.
0: I I think that's a v- amazing uh uh framing framing to, to to that. And um also if anybody were to be in any Organization. Mm-hmm. There are always two sides to the coin, yeah. and if you all only look at, you know, uh, uh, like the bright-eyed intern who wants to, you know, join whatever organization and yeah. say a lot of good things, if you can point out the bad things about, I mean, the dark side, as you, as you put it, about those organization, put it in your resume or cover letter. Mm-hmm. it you really impress the, the 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 person on
1: the other side hiring, it shows that you're aware of things, you know. Yeah. And actually, one idea to build on that is also to say. Your, you know some of your most effective people can therefore be the ones who know how to jump between the sectors, and you know the ones who, in a sense are not bounded by boundaries right who can make the most of the highest highest purposes while minimizing the downsides. There's actually a term for this. The Harvard professor Joseph Nye he calls them trisector athletes
0: uh... right
1: so they are trisector. they can take care of you know they, they can move between all the sectors but they are athletes, they, they they do that in a very fluid way. We don't all need to be trisector athletes, but having some of us be trisector athletes is actually very useful because it allows us to do exactly what I described earlier. Maximize the highest purpose, but minimize the dark side. Do you,
0: uh, this is on a personal note, uh, do you think that this information or this lesson should be man- mandatory? I personally, have, I, I would like it to be mandatory uh, for anyone who's joining any organization mm. that, you know, they should know this and compare it to their mm. own goals and
1: yeah. In, in some ways. I would also say this though. Oh. You need to believe this idea through experience, not just because you are told it. Mm. You know, your boss can tell you at the start of the year that this is the case. But if you don't experience both the highest purpose and the dark side of what you're doing, then you probably won't believe the person. You might find that oh, they're being very intellectual. You know, you don't fully get the point that they're trying to make. So, you know, having it expressed in things like, you know, onboarding briefings and manuals and handbooks could be useful. But I think even more importantly than that, leadership and everyone in an organization as part of its culture must live out the fact that this is the case. Yeah. Because then, then then the idea becomes alive. Otherwise, it just stays very theoretical.
0: Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, but I do think that, you know, putting a, a frame of reference so that, you know, just sitting that, like a, like a seat, you know. Sure. So later on, maybe when you have the
1: experience, oh, okay, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And then make the connection. Make it a screensaver. That's actually very yeah. powerful. Everybody has to see it. Everybody wow. That's, yeah. that's, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah. <laughs> screensaver and put it on cubicle doors in toilets. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You guarantee yeah. everybody will see it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, it's easy. Um, Okay, this is on the idea of being a cynic versus being an, an idealist. And you strike me and I am too, uh, pretty much a, a very positive and idealistic thinker. Yeah. Are there, do you, do you, do you recall of any incident that sort of like, I mean, maybe it's not one, but a gradual, you know, belief in that and, you know, that cemented that for you that, you know, it is, we can achieve a lot of, 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 of greatness and you know I guess the best way which is a story that was being told to me was that a baker versus an eater. A, a baker just believed that there's enough cake in the world and if not I would just bake more and an the eater always believed that there is the same cake and I need to get the biggest chunk. Right. So uh,
1: yeah, are there anything that seeded that? It, it was more gradual than, than, than a single event. For me, I, think. I yeah. that too. Sure, yeah. yeah. No, and I think it, for, for me, definitely it was. I'm not sure for everyone else, but definitely for me, you know, I think, again, the sense of the possibilities that my, my parents always felt we could push ourselves towards, great teachers, great role models and mentors, you know, and just the benefit of experience to look around and say, yeah, actually, there are enough examples here of people who, you know, do wonderful work and can make the world a little bit better So, you know, I I, I guess the core of it is this. We have a choice about whether to curse the darkness or light a candle, right? And I'd rather light the candle. I just think it's a better use of my time and my energy and hopefully everybody else's time. And that's not to say you do it in a naive way, right? Naive idealism is useless. It helps nobody. Mm -hmm. But you must be aware that the darkness is there and then you light the candle, right? But if you don't know where the matches are, you don't know where the candles are, then that's useless idealism. Is there any...
0: um... Reference of resources or content that you know, if I, I so I can convince my cynical friends to to maybe start thinking, hey, you know, it might not.
1: So that's for me personally. No, 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 it's I, a great yeah. question. Um, one of it I think would be what we talked about a bit earlier, right? The Carol Dweck idea that you are not just what you are today; you can grow, right? Mm-hmm. So she says that if you have a growth mindset, you believe that you can learn and continually get better, and that's fundamentally an idealist view, right? that we learn and the world can therefore get better in that process. The opposite of that is the fixed mindset, a bit like your eater, right? Who believes that there's only a little bit of cake or that I am limited by what I am. I can never learn. I can never grow. I can never improve. But that's not true. Life is all about improvement. Granted, for some of us, it might be easier to improve than for others, but it is always possible to do that improvement, even in in just a little uh, measure. So the growth mindset is one important part. The other thing that I think is critical is psychologists call this the locus of control um you know do you believe that the locus of control of your life is external or internal if you believe it is external then what you believe is fundamentally that the things around you will affect your destiny so the system my boss my parents right whatever right, the, the external factors around you an internal locus of control will lead a person to say i decide what happens to me, right? I make choices. Those choices have consequences and that's what's going to affect my future most of all. Now, of course, in real life, you need both, right? If you have only internal locus of control, you'll be very reckless because you won't care about what's going on around you at all. If you have only external locus of control, then I think you are probably quite, you're going to come across as quite weak, right? And not have much agency Mm -hmm. because everything will be someone else's fault Mm -hmm. and you will not be able to sit down and say, yeah, actually, I can take ownership over my life here. So we need a bit of both but I suspect more of us can afford to have an internal locus.
0: How?
1: Okay, I, I like that. And that's actually one of the questions
0: that, you know, uh, how can I, uh, what practices can one have to, to, to have more internal? I mean, to learn, uh, I, I don't know, how, what's a better way to do mm. it, No, no, practices. It, right? Yes, I
1: understand. Yeah, how do yeah, you Practice yeah. to gain more mm. internal locus. Yeah, because it's one thing to understand it theoretically, yes. but another to actually live it up. Yeah. There are many, but if you had to start with something, I would say that you should start with keeping some kind of a gratitude journal. At the end of every day or end of every half day or whatever, write down the things that you are grateful for. And the reason this is very powerful is a few things. One is it helps you go to sleep happy, right? Because no matter how awful the day has been, you will find something to be happy about. And I I do find this, every day I can write at least three or four things, right? It might not be much. Maybe I had a really sucky day at meetings and you know, got scolded and had various things happen. But I might be grateful for small things, right? The fact that I got to come home for dinner instead of having to stay late at work. I might be grateful for a nice walk or noticing something along the way home. I might be grateful because I had a nice conversation with one of the security officers at my, my uh, work office. All those things are things to be grateful for. And the, the, the key is, the more you do this, at least the more I do it, the more I have found that actually... I can choose whether I have a good day or a bad day. Like Even it. with the bad days, right, where stuff goes wrong that I can't control, there are things that I have agency over. And so the Gratitude Journal, while it started off as a, a process of just focusing on the things that I appreciate, now it's become a much more powerful tool than that.
0: Wow. Right? I actually do a, a gratitude practice myself right. uh, every day. Yeah, And, and, and now to... To, to hear that the the power and the impact of it, I think it can be very. It's just yeah. immense, right? Uh, and and also I like to. Uh, so your add, practice is what you do. A... I do a morning walk like an old man. <laughs> That's fine.
1: Some of us were born old, souls. it's okay.
0: <laughs> and uh and I I I just uh, think about um different aspect of my life. Actually I I do it at the start of the day right. that I'm grateful about um so uh, health relationships knowledge, mm-hmm. um, um opportunities. Right. Yeah and, yeah and and i and, exactly.
1: yeah I don't think the timing exactly matters. it's really the the fact that you do it right that that for me is important because that leads to like i said the the, the powerful potential in what gratitude can show us
0: yeah uh i I, I agree uh, with you, and it's highly effective, and it takes uh, a short amount of time and imagine you can just use three minutes of, your, of your time to to change your day from an extremely bad day to an extremely good day yep. and to know that you have the power to do that yeah. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. You have so much responsibility from different area of your, your job, different association, and spending time to write, to read. Uh, how, how do you wrap your head around that? You know, what? A... <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Actually, the most important thing is I'm not doing any of this alone. Uh, and I think that's really important to say, right? Complex work cannot be done alone. And I have extremely wonderful teams that I work on all this stuff with, whether at work, right, where I have three different teams looking after three different areas of responsibility, uh, or in the community work, I, I have plenty of, of partners, um, you know, soulmates, friends, kindred spirits, who work on these issues with me. And it's all about team efforts. I'm a big believer that, you know, the old archetype of the, the hero leader, right, who is out there and just leads everything on their own, doesn't actually work. Everything is about a team effort. And the role of the leader in that situation is not to be, you know, the one charging ahead and expecting everyone else to follow. The role of the leader there is to take care of the organization so that the teams function in the best possible way, so that the different partners and stakeholders can work in in the best possible way, and then to remove obstacles. So I think of that as my role. So, you know, I I am not doing everything myself so it doesn't appear quite as daunting as you you kind of made it out to be because everybody has a part in this process.
0: Right and how how do you like uh, uh, plan your week then, you know, because um some it can be overwhelming that you have so many different areas and mm-hmm. and and com- I guess maybe the the question would be more compartmentalizing and also I guess setting yeah. your intentions. Yeah. Yeah, those are more, yeah, the, the, the questions I would ask. Because there's never enough time to the day.
1: No, there is never enough time. Yeah. Um, so there's a few things that I do try and, and, and work on. Uh, and I'm going to start with what I think is the most important. Which is that bec- if you want to do lots of stuff, you must set aside some time to do nothing. And I know it sounds paradoxical because a lot of people will say, if I want to do stuff, I must fill out all the moments in the diary, right? I don't. Sundays are mine. They are family time, they are slow time, they're quiet time, they're introverted time. Because I know I'm doing so much extroverting in the rest of my life that I need that time to recharge the batteries. So when I'm planning the week, Sundays are almost sacrosanct. right? I think some of the, you know, know, there's some religions that observe a Sabbath, right? And that's not the only way to do this. You know, so it's a Friday for the Muslims, Sunday for, for Christians, Saturdays for Jews, um... But there are other ways. That. So I, I like the, that idea, but I think there are many ways to do this. For some people, they might set aside that quiet time on a different day on many different evenings. So I structure it with, with Sundays being sacrosanct. I try not to do anything at all. Uh, and It's just a time for, for building up energy again. Then in the rest of the week, um, I try and make the most of my office hours. So those are very, very full, right? With, with meetings, with phone calls, with, with conversations with people so that I can get, things done in the sense of moving things along, right? Not always doing stuff by myself, but at least facilitating it such that other people has have the information they need. That's one. Second thing is when I, when I work on my email, I try to be as quick as I can about it. So reply when something comes in. If I can get it done in two minutes, get it done quickly. I think there's you know, some, some management theory around yeah. it, right? Just get it out to people. Um, another thing that I try and do is I delegate a lot. One of my ex-bosses told me, delegate like you're going on leave tomorrow. So imagine if I'm not around tomorrow, who's got to take care of all this? So that means sharing information, looping people into processes so that they all have what they need and you are not a bottleneck anymore. So all that's critical. And then the last thing to complement the Sunday is that I start and end every day with a bit of quiet time as well. So when I wake up in the morning, I have a bit of a morning routine. Uh, so I'm a Muslim, so I do my morning prayers in the morning. Then I, uh, I do about 20 to 30 minutes of yoga. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, deep breathing exercises, a few different poses, and then 20 to 30 minutes of silent meditation as well. So just sitting down and focusing on my breathing and in a sense, getting ready for the day, right? And then at night, there's a shorter meditation and then a night prayer, gratitude journaling, and then I go to sleep. So I find that when I'm my day that way, actually the middle can be as challenging and as full and as crazy and frantic as it needs to be. But I don't mind it so much.
0: Um, for people who are uh, just starting with uh, a meditation, uh, yeah, uh, what what are
1: uh, what can they start it's with? Any not small? It's, it's a muscle like any other muscle, okay. you know. So just as when you go to the gym, you are not going to start with the heaviest weight, <laughs> right? And you're not going to try and do lots of repetitions of the heaviest. Is weight. Is there any books that are
0: any resources or YouTube videos or?
1: Um, there are some. I mean, there's apps that are quite good. Headspace, oh, I yeah. think, is quite yes. a useful one. Um, but again, if people want to start really small, all I would say is. Just start by sitting down somewhere in a comfortable position, you know, and then be aware of why you are doing this, right? The intention, I think, is important. How,
0: what, what, what would
1: be the intention? So, an intention could just be, you know, I'm very tired, I now need to decompress. Or, I want to think about a specific thing for the next uh, few minutes. And I would say start small. Start with one minute. Just set a timer on your phone, one minute. Let the bell go off after that. And then you realize, okay, actually one minute was quite long and I managed to do it. And my mind actually did stray, but it's okay. I bring it back again and I, I learned to just keep focusing on my breathing. And then slowly you can expand it into two, five, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. I mean, there are people who meditate for like hours on end, right? <laughs> um, I, I don't. That's not part of my practice, but I think it, if they can, it, it's, it's it's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah. But we've got to figure out how to mani- meditate the way we can. Not the way we can't. Right? Mm. So don't try and imitate others. Don't try and work on that. Work on what works for you. If you find that sitting on the floor is helpful, then sit on the floor, sit on a pillow, sit on a chair, you know. And, and of course, try and set yourself up for success. Lah. If you know you live in a crowded place, put headphones on, right? If you know that you don't react well when there's a lot of light around you, turn off the lights, right? Mm. Sit in darkness for a while. Do the things that help you to maximize the chances of you succeeding. Yeah. But I would say start small, like any other muscle. Yeah. <laughs> um uh just
0: just to touch on a little bit about uh futures thinking because you're 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 spearheading that uh well i was i don't work on it directly anymore right uh but yeah but as a futurist as a futurist um what should you be focusing more on and what are the fluff
1: for in in futures you mean oh mm, i like that it's a good question um let me start with the fluff first yeah the fluff in, in futures is where people say, oh, here are my 10 predictions for what's going to happen by 2025 or something like that. Um, the real job of a futurist right, is to make better decisions today. And the reason we tell these stories about the future is because we want to understand what we are perceiving wrongly about the present. So the great futurist, uh, Pierre Vak, right, who was in Shell and then worked for a time with a group called the Global Business Network, which was a futures consulting firm. How
0: do I spell Vak?
1: W-A-C-K. Pierre Vac. Um, he, Vak said that futures is about reperceiving. He calls it the gentle art of reperceiving. Reperceiving because you're looking at the today in a different way. And it's gentle because you do it in a non-threatening way, right? If I said to you, you need to reperceive the present. You might look at me and say, uh, why? What's wrong with how I'm doing it now, right? And that could set up a space for a lot of argumentation. But if I tell you, in 10 years time, this could happen, right? It's a lot less threatening when I do it in that way. So that's why it's a gentle art, right? Because the time distance helps to create a certain amount of um, objective space where people can have a discussion and disagree about the future. But fundamentally, what we're doing is trying to understand the biases and the mental models and the assumptions that we are making about that future and thereby understand today even better. So when the government does futures, when a company does futures, when an individual does futures, right, because we can plan for ourselves, what we are doing is trying to reperceive the present, understand it better so that we can make a decision better today. So that's what we should be focused on. Okay, and what are the, the fluff that people should not be focused on? The fluff on? is the predictions, right? It's saying, oh, so your scenario, did you get it right? Did, that, ah. did it actually materialize? Did it happen or not? I don't think that matters particularly.
0: Got it. Yeah. Uh, that, that's great. So let's jump into the rapid fire question. Okay um, uh, what are, what is uh books or book or books that you have given the
1: most? Asking? Yes. So I brought some props for this because oh. I think that, um, is most useful that I can share these things. Um, so a few different books. This one is, uh, the birthday book, which a friend of mine, Malminajit Singh edited last year. Um, you know, I was helping him with some of the, the support work, but he did all the editing and it's a collection of 51 essays. Um, because we, wrote it in the year that Singapore turned 51. And it's the birthday book because it appears each year during National Day. So it's going to be a yearly book. Each year, one more writer. So this year, there'll be 52, 53, and the year after that, and then 54. Um, and last year, we, the 51 essays were all about this question of what is Singapore's next big thing. So I have an essay in it, uh, but many other friends have essays in it as well. And I think it's quite a nice collection of different people's thoughts about Singapore's future. Mm. Uh, so this one I've been giving out to a few people, especially if they want to understand Singapore better.
0: Right. And also yeah. on the note of futures thinking, there would be a great you book know way to That's start right. to, to listen to other people's story yeah. and form your own thinking. Exactly. It.
1: exactly. Yeah. Right. And, have to, and you know, it's really varied because different people talked about many different things. Um, my essay is a letter to myself from the future. Right? So myself in 2065 writing to me today uh, which I thought was a fun thing to do. That is actually a pretty good, uh, uh, I like to, I like to ask myself that. Like, yeah. you know, when your
0: ADL exactly. self would come back and give you advice, right? What now.
1: advice would you get? Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, another friend, Shemay, wrote about, um, being in a food SME business and she put a recipe in there. Another person, Olivia Lee, wrote a design brief for Singapore because she's right. a designer yes, herself. Yes, yes, she's an expert. Yeah.
0: yeah, she's great. That's right. She's work.
1: wonderful at experiential yeah. design. So, so this I've been giving out to, to a whole bunch of people. Um, I sometimes used to, less so now, uh, give out my book of poems. The, my first book, um, Morning at Memories Border. Especially if it was to friends who I, you know, felt I wanted them to understand a bit of me that might not be so obvious in, you know, the more public aspects of my life. Uh, the, the collection has been useful. So there's another book coming out soon, uh, you know, later this year, but this, this for now is, is what I sometimes give out. And then the third thing, um, which, I've been giving out to quite a number of people, is this book by a friend of mine, uh, Cyprian Concilio, who is a, he's a Benedictine monk. He lives in a monastery in California, in Big Sur, along the, the Pacific yeah, coast. You mean Big Sur? Yeah. yeah. So it's the Pacific coast. And the book is called Prayer in the Cave of the Heart, The Universal Call to Contemplation. And this is uh, an examination about how actually all the great religions of the world have some kind of a contemplative or meditative practice. Right, not You might not do it all the time, but they encourage people to every now and then take time to be quiet. And Cyprian examines this from the perspective of multiple faith traditions because he's an interfaith activist. Um, and that's how I got to know him, actually, through, through interfaith dialogue. Uh, and I give this out to people who tell me they want to start meditating, but aren't quite sure how. And, and interfaith, just so I get the yeah. term right, what, what is So it's, it's just interreligious dialogue. Okay. They're bringing different people from different religious experiences, or even who don't have a religion of their own, yeah. uh, who, to come and share their experiences and kind of recognize the common humanity that they okay. that is between them.
0: And, and what's meditation. nice
1: about this is it's all about different forms of meditation. And each chapter ends off with a couple of paragraphs of practical things that people can do to start meditating. So um, this is another resource that I think is quite wonderful and I, I try to share it with people. So those three things, depending on the context, I try and share them. All right. Yeah. And do you have a favorite documentary or, or, or movie? You know, you mentioned you're an old soul earlier, right? Um, I am as well. So I really like old vintage material. So the two that I have are The Sound of Music and Ben-Hur. Uh, both great movies in different ways that you know, explore human values in a very, very deep way.
0: Okay, if, yeah. if one were to, to to pick one to to start, oh, that's oh. very
1: hard. But I think if I had to pick one, it probably would be the Sound of Music. I watched it earlier. I have loved it for longer. Okay, so sell sell us, sell me that because I never heard of the Sound of Music. So it's it's a, okay. it's it's, it's the, one of Julie Andrews, you know, most famous films. Uh, she's got it's a musical first of all, so the songs are fantastic, and and actually. There, there are songs that we may, nowadays we don't even know came from that musical. You know the song My Favourite Things? Yeah. Raindrops on Roses and Whiskers on kittens. That's from the movie. Um, the song Do Re Mi, Do a Deer, a Female Deer? That's from the movie. So it's it's a movie that actually in small ways has really shaped a lot of common vocabulary these days. And I think we don't even notice it, which is a sign of a successful piece of art, I think. That it's there influencing us without us even knowing. Um, so that's the, 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 film element of it. But, you know, the story's just a great one, right? It's a young nun who meets and falls in love with a man, uh, and the family of seven that he, seven children that wow. he has, because their, their mother passed away. Uh, and it's set during World War II. So it's partly about the conflict between the Austrians and the Germans as well. Okay. But multiply wonderful stories. The sound of music. Yep. Uh, what have you purchased recently under $100 that has most impacted your life? My second yoga mat. Um, so I have, I've always had one at home and I've done yoga in the morning and evenings, as I said, right. Uh, but I remember also thinking, you know what, this should infuse the rest of my life as well. I shouldn't think of work as somehow separate from my, my meditation time. So I actually have a yoga mat open in my office all the time. Uh, if I feel like I've been checking email for too long, I might do a few poses just to stretch the back again. Uh, and sometimes at lunch, if I have enough time, I'll do a you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes of meditation on and, the and mat what, as well. uh, 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 yoga mat. If anyone who get one. Um, you know, to be honest, I'm not even sure what the brand okay, of it is, but whatever, yeah, I, I I got it from a sports shop in Funan. Okay. Um, <laughs> the one one day when I was free during lunch, yeah. Right.
0: Um, what important truth do very few people agree
1: with you on? Um, this would probably be the the combination of growth mindset and internal locus of control that I mentioned to you earlier. So growth mindset being the fact that we can grow and learn, right? And locus of control where you say, I am responsible for my future. I can take charge of things. I think when you put those together, they can be very empowering. But a lot of people, when they disagree with me, will say, oh, but, you know, the system still matters. Are you sure we have so much agency? There are external factors out there as well. And they're not wrong. I just don't think those external factors need to control who we are
0: good um any advice for your 20 and 30 year old self and place
1: us where you're at so it's a good question you know i mean i just told you i wrote myself a letter from the future right Uh, but i actually don't think i would want to give myself advice the reason for it is that i think life is an emergent process right we are all perpetual drafts we're always becoming something we're never static right so Everything that, I, that used to happen, I wouldn't want to avoid. I wouldn't want to give my old self advice and say, don't do that, try something different. Because without the things that happen, I would not be where I am now. So I, I think I wouldn't want to change anything. And I, want, I would want that emergent process to just play itself out. What is the worst advice you see or hear being dispensed in your circle? Find yourself. Um, I hate that one. Because finding yourself suggests that there is a self that you can find. Uh, but actually, each of us is a self that is always in process of becoming, right? We're always changing. We're always evolving. We are learning. We're growing. And so find yourself doesn't strike me as a particularly useful thing because, you know, the first self I find today and the self I find tomorrow might be very different.
0: Yeah, and, and also that's really good because you're coming back to your point of the internal versus external locus yes, of control, exactly. you know, yep. crafting yourself. Correct. It's more internal local of control to look at things versus finding yourself is externally no, no that's right that there is something out there that's predetermined for you to to locate
1: when you think of the word successful, who came into your mind and why yeah it's actually I really struggled with this yeah. question you know um partly because there are so many and I think the thing that unites all of them is people who are doing things that they care about and that they are interested in and that the world needs you know so that that combination I think is Is key. Um, Yeah. So the people who come to mind, I mean, one is a, I mentioned Peter Ho to you earlier, right? This career mentor. He was my first permanent secretary when I joined the the foreign ministry. And then later on, I worked with him on futures um, in in the civil service. And he strikes me as someone, you know, who's very clear about what his values and vision are, uh, who enjoys the work that he does and who, you know, when there are obstacles that come along, he's very philosophical about how he deals with them. And I think that that's a sign of, of, of real deep happiness. What are
0: some of the most uh, common misconceptions about you or your work?
1: Hmm. Three things, right? That I think are quite important. On on the work part, first of all, the assumption that government is monolithic, right? Or that there is only one government out there. I don't think that's true. There are many different personalities, different people, each with their hopes and aspirations. And different AG agencies actually have very different perspectives on things as well. You know, you talk to the Environment Ministry, my ministry, the National Development guys, and we'll all have different views on, on issues, which is good, I think. That diversity greats, uh, begets richer outcomes, I think. So so that's one, that there's no monolithic government. Second, I would say the the stereotype that government is bureaucratic. Um, that may be true on some things, but actually there are sometimes good reasons for it, and also a lot of quiet innovation that's happening in the public sector. So I think that's a, a myth that I would hope to slowly try and dispel. And then on myself, it, it's really about the multiculturalism idea that I mentioned to you earlier. You know? People tend to not quite understand how to get their heads around this chap who is Indian, Eurasian, Pakistani, Malay, with a smattering of Chinese who is Muslim, but half of whose family is Roman Catholic, and who you know celebrates Christmas with his grandma as much as he celebrates Hari Raya. Um, that's not always an easy idea, but you know, the ones who get to know me, I think, realize that well, it's just a person who happens to be very varied. Uh, are there any asks or requests for the audience? Uh, last parting words. Mm. This would actually go back to some of the things I, I talked about earlier, right? One is to to have a growth mindset to never assume that any of us is is fixed and can never improve or learn or change all of us have the capacity to do that if we want to and we need not do it ourselves right like we can get support from others we can find people who can help us along that journey mentors you know supporters cheerleaders guardian angels call them what you like but they're there uh and if we try and find them i think we can actually grow so that's one thing and the second thing is if you you know even if the external world is important Remember that there is some internal locus of control. We have the capacity to influence things around us. Not perfectly and not immediately, but we do have the capacity to do it. Are there any upcoming projects that people can look forward to? Uh, a few. I have a new book of poems coming out at the end of the year. It's called Second Persons uh, because all the poems are written in the second person voice. So they're all addressed to a you of some kind. Um, I've had a lot of fun putting it together. It's taken a while. You know, the, the first collection came out in 2005. And so it's taken 12 years for the second book to come out. Uh, but I'm pleased that I took my time with it. You know, I, I didn't. I don't think these things should be rushed. And uh, I'm excited to see, you know, what the editing process is like. I'm waiting for my publisher to come back with some cover designs. And then we will look at what that um, can look like. And I think it will be fun because, you know, it's, it's a new me as well. So, you know, it's a second book and it's a second me. So second person seems like a good uh, title for it. So, book and Book else? and, uh, well, there'll be another birthday book coming out this year, okay. uh, which, you know, um, okay. Melminder and another friend are working on, but I, I'm i excited to see what they can do okay. you know, with the, the whole thing. Uh, and, and at some point, I want to think about, you know this is a longer-term project, I'm thinking a lot about how to bring foresight to more people, you know, futures and, and foresight work. Uh, because at the moment, the futures work that's done, you know, the government does it very well, businesses do it very well. I don't think we have broadened it as much as we can to others. There's been a, a couple of processes where the Institute of Policy Studies has done more public futures. And I'd like to see how that can happen a bit more, you know, put it into school syllabi, get university students and maybe even primary school kids to think about the future a lot more. I think if we do that, we start to empower them with this tool of thinking and also the ways of reperceiving the present. So I'm, I'm toying with different ideas about how to create schools for the future, you know, where, where people can can learn these methodologies. Where can people find you or your project on the interwebs? Um, so I do a little bit of tweeting, but not much. Okay. The best places are probably Facebook, where I post a lot of my, uh, my writing and Medium. So I sometimes cross-post between Facebook and Medium. Okay. And increasingly, I'm putting up stuff on Medium, uh, both the poems as well as writing on ideas of complexity, as well as some of my ideas about you know, how public policy and, and innovation can evolve in the future. Mm.
0: Yeah. And and, so and where where is the what's the user? So just Aaron Money. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, and uh, we're done. Great, that was fun. What's up, people? It is over. Can you believe it? You guys just see through, listen through two hours of interview. Wow, I'm proud of you guys. So as usual all show notes links books can be found on the website brianvictor.com brian for why and if you have any misfits you'd like to hear from you know, feel free to drop me an email tell me why you want to uh, hear from them uh, or some questions you'd like to ask and what you want to learn from these people and again thank you so much for giving me your time and listening to this episode I, I really hope you enjoy it uh, and for those of you in anywhere you are in this world I hope you have a fantastic week ahead We'll